And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, a very curious edition, a very experimental edition of The Other Side of Midnight tonight. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying something tonight that we have not tried before, and I'm hoping that it's going to work. Uh, the guest that I wanted overwhelmingly to do this evening is my dear friend, uh, Stan Tennen. Unfortunately, um, Stan can't do the show because he's no longer in this dimension. Stan died on January 30th of 2022 after a um, significant illness. Uh, when I did the show with him way back when in 2015, which we'll get to momentarily, uh, he was not well then, and unfortunately, um, he died. However, due to the magic of recordings and digital media, the show that we did together, the really important show on his extraordinarily important work, uh, we have been able to resurrect it from the archives, at least uh, the, the, the vital part of it. We could not locate the imaging so tonight, when we refer to things in radio with pictures, uh, what you need to do is to go to my items and uh, not during the show, because it really, it really doesn't make much difference to listen to those and watch those items during the show. Just listen to the flow of the conversation. And then we have videos, we have links to Stan's Meru Foundation, so you can go back and look at the imagery, the diagrams by which Stan arrived at his truly remarkable geometric conclusions. So this is going to be a real radio show tonight, except for some of the things that I'm going to do in the next half hour. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to give you some context as to why I thought it really important to resurrect this really in intriguing show from the archives and play it tonight as if Stan were still here. And when you listen, eerie, it's so stunningly eerie, it's like this show, given what's going on in the world, particularly in the Middle East, it's like this show is going on tonight, live. Because what Stan says, and Lavana, his uh, wife and research partner and uh, colleague and every other approbation you can think of in a positive sense uh, joins us, you know, you would think that this was a live show because of what's going on on this very, very sick planet tonight, particularly in the Middle East, in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. So be that as it may, let me, let me kind of try to presage this with, with some framing. The way this has come about is, as I've been watching for the last two weeks since October 7th, the insanity progressing uh, in equal measure, it seems to me, there in the Middle East. Yes, a horrible, tremendously shattering tragedy of unimaginable description and proportions occurred because of Hamas on the 7th of October. That does not explain the equally insane response of Netanyahu's government to have bombarded Gaza. 6,000 aerial bombs 
of various powers and uh, uh, capacities in the space of just a week. In previous wars between Israel and its neighbors who do not want it to exist, like Hamas, um, it's it's been a far less fevered and frantic pace. If I remember one number correctly, the, the amount of munitions that we dropped in Afghanistan on the Taliban in a month did not equal what Israel has meted out to the Palestinians confined to that narrow strip of land a few miles across and 25 miles long, hugging the Mediterranean coast there on the west coast of Israel. It is an insane response. In fact, it's so insane that in place of normal news items, I have simply, in the modality of everything, everywhere, all at once, which has become kind of like the operative um, watchword of this program, all these disparate things that are crazy and do not, uh, they make no sense, they should not be occurring, and they're all occurring at once, fit under that rubric, everything, everywhere, all at once, which, of course, includes this insane war. And I do not know, and as you'll listen to Stan and me uh, discuss the meaning, the extraordinary meaning of his seminal discoveries, and I quote several scholars who have looked at Stan's work over the last 30 or so years and have come up with glowing accolades for his scholarship, his discipline, his rigor, the fact that when Stan says something, and there are many times during the conversation you'll hear him temporize, because as good scientists do, they don't want to make final pronouncements until the last erg of information has been encoded, analyzed, and confirmed. He is so humble and, and gentle in what he, how he describes what he has found. I'm a little more out there, as I am wont to do. Anyway, it is so appropriate as the solution, with a capital S, to what is going on in the Mideast tonight and tomorrow morning and the next morning and all that. Uh, I am just praying that the combined focused energies and consciousness of everyone listening to this show and making it go viral, because we're going to post this show on the Other Side of Midnight homepage in its unexpurgated form without having to go through the vicissitudes of Club 19.5, because this information that we're going to discuss tonight deserves to be broadcast to the world. And when we get into the latter part of the show, remember, it's only two hours, because we recorded it back when I was literally on Arts Network, or Keith Rowland's network, it actually was Arts, and it's only two hours. So to fill the remaining three hours of our time tonight, I'm going to do about a half hour uh, pre-view of what we're talking about and why now, you know, years later. This, was, this show was recorded with Stan on December 11th, uh, 2015. A lot of water has gone under the bridge between then and now. But again, if you listen to this show and you miss the fact that it's a replay of the one and only show I was able to do 
with Stan while he was alive, you would think that we were literally broadcasting live tonight in view of what is going on in Gaza, which I did not know until I had previewed the whole show. And there's all kinds of very important and strategically significant data points within our two-hour conversation. So what I'm going to do is to do the first half hour as a book end or a frame around the two-hour content of what Stan and I discuss. And then toward the end of the show, in the last half hour, give or take, I'll come back in and I'll have some uh, closing thoughts. And then I'm going to replay a portion of the interview underscoring the most significant part, I believe, of our conversation, which relates to everyone listening, everyone following on social media, and most critical, the one thing that might change, which seems almost uh, inevitable now in terms of Israel's invasion of the Gaza Strip. If you really believe your mantra that you are trying to abide by the rules of war, that you didn't know there were rules of war, did you? Then what Israel has been doing past now 3,500 Palestinians having died under this onslaught aerial bombardment, um, it really bestokes the uh, background to that single cartoon I, I replicated in item number one, which is headed simply revenge. And revenge is not what is required at this point in time. Yes, what Hamas did to uh, Israelis uh, on, on the morning of October 7th was insane. It was horrible. It was evil. It was outright unexpurgated evil over and over again. However, that does not make right the idea of killing twice as many Palestinians, including here and there, I guess, Hamas, in an unbridled campaign of aerial bombardment, which in terms of the population of, of the you know, Gaza Strip, half of them are children. And as you've been watching the videos from outside sources through various media all over the internet and all over television, more than half of the victims of this bombardment are children. This is not the way that Israel should proceed. As outside voices, including our president, President uh, Joe Biden, physically making a dangerous trip in the middle of a war zone to the Middle East, to Tel Aviv, to tell Netanyahu face-to-face, -face, this is not going to solve anything. And when I listen to Stan's work and the presentation of the meaning of his work at the very end of the show, of the two hours, it struck me overwhelmingly that I had made the correct decision tonight to play his interview, to play his work, because eerily, and very depressingly, between 2015, just before Christmas in December, all those years ago, and tonight, nothing seems to have changed except things have gotten worse. So let me give some context. Um, 
in the milieu that everything is happening everywhere now all at once. You just have to look at what's going on in Washington. And that's the second item in my list in Radio with Pictures tonight, because it basically has the New Yorker cartoon, which is rather apropos in terms of comment vis-a-vis what's going on in the U.S. House of Representatives. First, for the first time in the 240, is it nine years or three years, whatever, it's almost a quarter century of the existence of the United States, one of one side of the House, one of the parties, the Republicans, fired the Speaker of the whole House. Because when Republicans or Democrats elect a Speaker, he or she is not just in charge of one half of the House, the party that won more seats during the um, congressional election than the other party. The Speaker elected by one side of the House under current um, ritual, I can say that, is actually elected to govern and control and steer the entire House, which means for the first time in U.S. history, after 17 days of this craziness, because the Republicans cannot agree among themselves on who will lead them and the rest of the House, tonight the U.S. government is broken. Let me repeat that. For the first time in 200 and almost 250 years, the U.S. government tonight in terms of representative government, elected representatives in the House of Representatives representing 770,000 people in each district is broken. It cannot represent its constituency tonight and there does not seem to be a soft landing in sight. Even last night on Friday when the House, without a speaker, just up and went home. You know, the, the, the Speaker Pro Tem basically dismissed the House. The Speaker Pro Tem, it turns out, for arcane reasons having nothing to do with the Constitution and everything to do with House rules, which, of course, were enacted uh, because the Republicans won the House in the uh, elections last November. That's where Kevin McCarthy became the Republican Speaker after 15 votes, 15 different efforts to bring him to the fore. And then two weeks ago, uh, is it no, it's 17 days ago, he was summarily dismissed because he caved to the radical wing of his party, gave uh, the Matt Gates a universal vote of one to call the question and to vacate the chair, meaning to get rid of, to fire the speaker. And now for the last 17 days, going on 18, we have had no speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Therefore, no matter what legislation is agreed upon with bilateral agreement in the Senate and then sent over to the House, nothing can be done. Apparently, the rules were so written that the speaker pro tem is not like the equivalent of a vice president, where if something happens to the president, the vice president takes over and the presidency is still functioning. And we saw this happen back during the uh, era of Ronald Reagan. We saw it happen during the uh, administration of George Bush. There have been times in modern history where 
a president has been incapacitated and the vice president seamlessly took over. Well, not this time in the House of Representatives. They are, we are, stuck unless the Republicans can agree or unless they do something outside the box, which is turned to their Democratic colleagues, just five Republicans turning to the Democratic colleagues, proposing someone who's sane and rational and represents both sides of the House, united government in an era where we need more unity than we need separation. God help us. Until that happens, based on the dozen or so that after the uh, second nominee for speaker, after um, uh, Steve Calise, uh, Jim Jordan, went down in flames with three votes where every vote he lost members and wound up with the fewest votes for speaker in, I believe, the history of the U.S. House of Representatives. This private vote in the conference committee uh, yesterday afternoon decided they would open the floor to new designations, new nominations for election for speaker. And so we've got now about a dozen members of the House on the Republican side again because of the way the House under the rules is divided. And we all know what Abraham Lincoln said about divided houses, right? Anyway, until these Republican members can reach some kind of consensus and agreement and put up a candidate who can garner 217 votes in a House of 435 members. Nothing can go forward. And there are huge things that need to go forward, not the least of which is what's still occurring in Ukraine. There's a war. And what is occurring tonight in Israel? There's another war. And nothing, including other potential critical legislation about the southern border or about giving more money to Taiwan so that the Chinese communists know that there is no inroad there. In other words, business must go on. And Oh, did I mention the budget? There is a ticking clock in terms of the budget for the entire United States. The, the authorization, the so-called continuing resolution, it lapses in the first week in November. And the clock is, is rigorously and irrevocably and inexorably counting down to another data point where unless the House gets its act together, unless the Republicans elect a speaker or five Republicans decide to create something which is desperately needed, which is a bilateral government where a speaker is agreed upon by Republicans and Democrats and progress and business can move forward in tens of days. The government runs out of money, major portions close down, military, you know, uh, members of all the branches, Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, Air Force, Space Force, all of it comes to a shuddering halt and people need to serve, but they will not get paid. This is no way to run the world's oldest democracy. No way. Yet that seems to be what's going on, which, of course, uh, brings me to my second 
item for tonight, which is, again, this New Yorker cartoon, which, for those of you who don't have access to the Internet, has two clowns watching uh, television. And one of them says about the situation in the House, stop comparing House Republicans to clowns. And the second clown says, yeah, it's insulting. I mean, sometimes cartoons really make the point. So, item number three, the backdrop to our conversation tonight, Stands in Mine, is a book that took him decades, despite a lot of urging by a lot of his friends and colleagues, me probably at the head of the list. I kept telling him over and over again, Stan, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. In these days of, of videos that come and go, of social media that's nothing but an exchange of vitriol and hate, of people that have nowhere to turn for calibrated, reliable truth, a book, a very detailed work of substance, of background, of research, of documentation, of comparing various scholarship, various academic precedents, uh, in other words, real research, is the only way we can get in front of a basically overwhelmed public that are now being pulled in far too many directions, uh, a work of substance. And so Stan's book, in item number three, I linked to the Barnes & Noble page uh, because the other Amazon pages for some reason came up in Spanish. I have no idea why my uh, uh, computer is selecting Spanish. And I figured I wouldn't put people through the uh, you know, agony of trying to translate in Google Translator a Spanish website. I have no idea why when you uh, do a search, um, a Spanish website for Amazon keeps coming up. If someone can enlighten me, I will be very grateful. Anyway, I chose Barnes & Noble. It's available on many, many booksellers. It's available on Amazon which you can find in English version. It's a crucial book, the title of which is The Alphabet That Changed the World. And what Stan describes toward the end of our discussion tonight is that, in fact, in Hebrew, in the Judaic tradition, that title also means simultaneity in that it's an alphabet that will change the world or could if enough people put enough energy into making enough people aware of the stunning and global paradigm-changing research, scholarship, embedded in Stan's book. So you're going to look for, when you have time, I wouldn't do it during the show because you want to focus on every word. Uh, it's amazing. I listened after two, no, more than two years, since 2015, Hadn't heard the show since then, and every single word could be uttered live tonight. That's how incredibly relevant his work, even though he's no longer with us physically. I know from my own experience, and I know it's not good science to hold up your own experience as anything, but I know from personal experience with Robin that Stan is out there, up there, over there, wherever there is, and he's watching very carefully what we do tonight. So, B 
Be that as it may, uh, let me move you to the next three items because I'm not going to interrupt the show. But when we refer to graphics or images that he painstakingly has uh, presented for his first show back in 2015, which have disappeared into that, you know, all-seeing wastebasket in the sky, you can reconstruct what we're talking about by either going to the links, which are item four and five and six in my items, and they are clearly labeled. Uh, some of them are like uh, 20 years old. That's kind of like the youngest of the more ancient research covered in his in his uh, lexicon. You can click on those. I would recommend you wait till the end of the show because you don't need to see the diagrams to follow the logic of what we're talking about. And if you turn your attention away, it will probably detract from the really important paradigm that you need to listen to every word and every nuance because this is very dense stuff. And I know that I've you know, been party to Stan's work for decades, and every time I listen to his presentations, I learn new stuff. That's how layered and how dense and how meaningful and important Stan's work is. So I would hold off looking at any of the video links. You might want to go to the uh, Mayra website, which, of course, is there right next to his uh, links. If you look at uh, Fast Links to Bios under the banner at the top of the guest page, just click on that. That will take you to Stan's page where we have his background, links to the Mayru Foundation, and uh, his full bio is also linked under his very short bio on our guest page. So let's see, we've got about, if I look here carefully, we've got about five minutes, four minutes or so, till the first break. So what we'll do is I'll play break music. I'll play, you know, one of our uh, multiple, um, uh, what would I call it, commercials. They're not really commercials. They're actually more like, uh, um, oh, they're, they're really promos. They're really advertisements for something which I think is important, which, of course, is getting more people to listen to this show. Because the only way this show stays on the air is if you subscribe to Club 19.5. And when you do that, we can pay the bills. If you don't do that, we can't. And the show ultimately, given even the infusions that I've been making over the years, and others have as well, it cannot stay on the air. So if you like what you hear tonight, spread the word. Talk to your family, talk to your friends, you know, uh, put it on social media, you know, put it on um, uh, Elon Musk's uh, X or Twitter page. Do whatever you can to get more and more people to look into uh, what we're trying to accomplish. Because let me tell you one interesting thing. The things that got me to really focus really hard on Stan Tennant's work to really hone in was when I'd gone through the geometry and the background and the letter forms and the tetrahedral uh, geometric reconstructions, because they're part of the algorithm that allowed Stan to make these stunning breakthroughs. I went through all of that, and then simultaneously I'm pursuing my own Sidonia research and the bingo, the aha, 
the Azart would say, ding, 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 came when I found the same geometry on Mars, the same geometry at Sidonia that Stan was describing and illustrating in decoding these Hebraic letter forms and texts. And that, of course, opens up an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary set of possibilities, some of which we will discuss at the end of the next two hours. So everyone kind of, you know, take a break, um, lean back, turn up the volume just a bit, and listen to something really extraordinary right after this message. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And so, from 2015, via the Wayback Machine, I give you Stan Tenen. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Other Side of Midnight. I'm your host, Richard C. Hoagland, and this morning I have a surprise for you. I know I promised a surprise a little earlier, but uh, as they used to say at this time of year, better late than never, and please don't get me started on the 12 days of Christmas because, well, that's a whole other show. Uh, Before I introduce my guest this morning, uh, I do want to say one thing about uh, this this, uh, latest fear over art. Apparently, Art had another episode of somebody shooting something at him uh, last night. And that's about all I know. I know he's fine. I know police were called. I know that he decided to take the night off to recuperate from, you know, whatever happened. And that, uh, But physically, he is fine. I must say that this pattern is disturbing. We are living in very disturbing times. And... The thing that we're going to be talking about this morning is not to give in to the disturbing times. In fact, we're actually going to be talking about some modalities that are the exact opposite, that are that are basically the cure for disturbing times. But we will get to that in a while. Um, how do I how do I characterize Stan Tennant? Stan Tennant and I met 
very serendipitously, oh, something like 30 plus years ago, at an institute in California called the Stanford Research Institute, which is a private think tank south of San Francisco on the peninsula, uh, not far from Stanford itself. And the reason we met is that we both had a colleague there, Dr. Lambert, who had a very eclectic series of interests. And it turns out that at the same time that he was intrigued with the idea that there might be an artificial civilization on Mars, he was also very intrigued with the idea that there might be an interesting meta-message starting in the text of Genesis that could be resolved and decoded mathematically and geometrically, which is basically the thesis of my friend and colleague Stan Tenen's work for the last many, many decades. Um, I can do no better to characterize what we're going to talk about this morning than to begin with the idea of how Genesis preserves a science of consciousness, a term that we've talked about on this show many, many times, both in geometry and gesture. So let me give you a little bit of background. Stan Tanner was born in 42, raised in a non-religious home in Brooklyn, New York, and has always been driven by, which I think most of us are, curiosity. Stan has this interesting ability to recognize patterns. He's a pattern um, amplifier, a, a pattern matcher. He has a BS in physics and holds numerous patents. In fact, I'm going to ask him about a couple of the patents because he worked at a very famous company. I don't know if he wants to mention the name of the company, but he did some interesting work there. Anyway, Stan is currently the director of research for the Meru Foundation, and we'll discuss what Meru is and how it got its name and what it does in a few moments. The book on the results of his last 30 plus years of research, actually much more, maybe going on 40, The Alphabet That Changed the World, How Genesis Preserves a Science of Consciousness in Geometry and Gesture, was published in 2011 by North Atlantic Books. My publisher, as you may note, Stan now lives and works with his wife, Lavana in Marin County, California, where I understand tonight it's unusually warm, and the fact is there is an El Nino coming. Stan, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. It's great to be on. It's great to finally have you on. It's been through some vicissitudes that we finally got you sitting in front of a microphone. Um, God, where do I want to begin? Where do I want to begin? Why don't you start by telling me from your perspective what you were doing in visiting Dr. Dolphin at SRI the day that we met? I don't actually remember, other than I was generally briefing him on what I had found, um, which was a pattern in a sequence of letters at the beginning of the Hebrew text of Genesis. Okay. So then let's jump in there. We've all read at one time or another Genesis. I mean, even people who are not Christians, people who are not Jews, people who are not anything, it's, it's one of the great books on the planet. You know, you have got to read Genesis in order to get a perspective on history, on culture, on who we are. Um, what, what, what began you, began you, that's a really terrible phrase. What, what began for you this curiosity about the text of Genesis and what might lie beneath the text? Well, I was working in Cambridge, Massachusetts as a physicist for a small optics company. And do we want to mention um, them? Block engineering in Cambridge, Mass, also Block Research, Brock Associates, which was their research arm. 
And I had a, a fight with the guy that ran the company, Myron Block, and he fired me. Hmm. And then the vice hmm. president entered the office and told him he couldn't fire me because he'd never given me a vacation. <laughs> so he had to wait until I took a vacation before he could fire me. So I took a vacation. And when I got back, of course, that, the issue had passed. Well, it turned out this was in August 1967. And in June 67, the Israelis and the Palestinians went, and the Egyptians and all went to war in the mm. June 67 war. I remember it well. And, and when that announcement was made, all of a sudden, people from this company in Cambridge, Mass, started disappearing. And I found out that what Myron had done was hire people from Israel who were at MIT studying because they were cheap. You could pay them less, less than, than you have to pay people living here who demanded full salaries. So there was a whole team of is, is Israeli scientists and, and scholars who were working at MIT that Block had hired. Kind of like one step, kind of like one step up from uh, grad student slave labor, as we all talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it, it was an angle. It, it worked. Everybody was happy, I guess. Anyhow, when the war broke out, these were senior people and they were pilots, and so they immediately went out to. Logan Airport and flew to Israel and joined their units. Mm -hmm. And when they got back, um, a friend of mine said he decided to move to Israel and invite me to visit. And I said, sure, when I get a chance, I'll come and visit. And that had happened in June. In in August, um, I got fired and I had three weeks to do nothing. And I was single and had no responsibilities, plenty of money. I took the then still running New York Boston shuttle to Idlewild Airport. It wasn't Kennedy Airport yet. I think they changed it later. And I got on an LL flight, which was delayed all night in a rainstorm. And it went to, to, to Paris and then it, it went to Tel Aviv. Um, it was a, a fantastic flight. It took twice as long as it should have. It was chaos. It was overcrowded. Um, everyone was fighting over the food. Um, I sat down next to some Christian missionary, and it was very quiet. But that was the only quiet spot on the, on the planet. Hmm. Anyhow, we arrived, and we were over the, 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 the French Alps, and the pilot comes on, and he says, we'll be landing at Lod Airport. It wasn't Ben Gurion yet, at 12.30.30. So I called the stewardess over and said, what does he mean, 12.30.30? And she says, he's going to land at 12.30 and 30 seconds. <laughs> said, okay. And then I look out the window and I feel the plane, not a flap moves, nothing changes. He went on a glide path from northern Italy onto the tarmac and hit the ground at 12.30.30. Oh, my God. He, they just come back from a war. Wow. They, were, they, they thought they were still, you know, fighting something. They were, they were doing precision flying. Wow. Anyhow, it was, it was a crazy trip. I was, I was dead tired. I'm with, I got a cab. I said to the cabbie, take me to Jerusalem, of course. And he drops me at the gate nearest the western wall to the temple at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. It's, it's just becoming daybreak. The Israelis had just cleared the plaza. They'd taken possession of the area in June, and this was August, I think. And it was it was pretty quiet. And a guy comes up to me and he puts a cardboard hat on my head because I, I wasn't wearing a hat. And I'm walking towards towards the wall, and I'm I'm looking at the scene, and there were these very happy, very proud Israeli soldiers and citizens, and then there were very glum and, and upset looking Palestinians. 
And it just flashed in my mind, you know, this isn't going to work. These folks don't like each other. Hmm. And so I made a spontaneous prayer. I said, I, you know, if there's anything I can do to, to let there be peace, let me know. And to, know, to let you know I'm serious, I'm not cutting my hair until there's peace. Which I only did once in a therapy session very early on because that's what they had me do. But I haven't cut my hair since the early 70s. So I get back to tour the country. Incredible situation. It was. It was. Um, they were still building the country. It was '67. It was pretty early on. Uh, get back east. Um, you mean back to Boston? And I get back to Boston, and I discovered that um, they're running these rerun episodes of The Prisoner, which was Patrick McGowan's series that was done ah, for the BBC. Yes. Yes. And it, it was this mystical st- thing about a village and the guy gets kidnapped and his spies. Well, there was only 16 episodes that they made for the BBC, but CBS needed 17 for the season. So they may have to make an extra episode. So they filmed an, a, an extra episode of the prisoner series without Patrick McGowan, without the star, without the village, without any of the sets or, the, or some of the, some of the characters, but not many. And it was it was called Do Not Forget Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. It was a complete outlier. And in the middle of this this program, up on the screen comes a code. And 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 that triggered a thought in my mind. I don't know how or why. And I it came into my mind, I've got to look at Genesis. I don't read Hebrew. So I searched I searched the house. I remember they'd given me a copy of of, of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. The Hebrew English edition at the time of the Sancino edition was popular. When you were in Israel, um, you say? No, this was when I got back. I, actually, uh, my, my neighbor had given me oh, a okay. copy okay. Of, of the Hebrew Bible when I was by Mitzvah, and I'd never been back to the synagogue since. So I found I packed it away on the back steps in, in my apartment in, in Boston, and I dug it out, and it fell open to the first line of Genesis, and my eyes fell on the first line. Now, I don't didn't read Hebrew. I could read the alphabet. So my eyes fell on the letters. Now you know. You mean you mean the geometric shape of the letters themselves? I could read the letters one by one, A, B, C, D, Alpha, Gimel. I could recognize the names of the letters, but I couldn't read the language, the words. I didn't know the translation was there, but I, I I couldn't read the Hebrew as a language, just as a sequence of letters. So my eyes fell on the letters. And that's why I saw there was intuitive. There was a pattern in the letters. So let me let me stop you there. Other people who could read the text wouldn't see the pattern of the letters because they'd see the words. Let me let me stop you. So you you go to Israel right after the '67 uh, war. You then right. come back. That obviously was some kind of a life changing experience. That whole that whole. Well, trip. I made a, I made this spontaneous prayer for peace. I didn't know I was doing that. I was at a holy spot. To the Western traditions, the, the last remnant of Solomon's temple, and I said, "Let me do, let me help if I can help to make peace." So you get back to the later, States and you see this episode from the the prisoner, and in the episode, yeah, a year later, there it's is a the, year later. It's, it's, it, 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 almost to, to the day I think this that, this added episode gets added to the series. Levana, do you remember it? Oh, sorry, I thought you was asking. So I. So you see, so you see this code, and then suddenly Genesis pops into your mind, having yeah, nothing to do. Yeah, now that's the point do... I can't explain. The, the picture of the code on the McGowan show on television has nothing to do with the Genesis code. 
but but seeing that that code, which didn't exist when I was in Israel, they made that extra episode. Right. That that triggered my thinking. It is almost as if when I made that prayer, that episode came into existence. If you want to get really metaphysical. <laughs> okay. Now I wasn't thinking anyway like that at the time. And so and you have a physics that. background. You don't have a linguistic or a code or an English or whatever. I have a BS in physics from what was Brooklyn Polytech. It's not part of NYU. A minor in math. It was a BS. It's worth nothing. Uh, I worked as a, as a physicist in electro-optics at Raytheon in Sylvania and this company, Block Engineering, General Laser, generally in the Boston area for quite a while. And then I had this experience. And So you have to root around in the house after this idea, Genesis, pops into your head. You have to go hunting for a copy of the Bible for the old... Right. I, I didn't have. I didn't know if I even had a copy. I found the, the you know, an English King James someplace that was on the bookshelf. I didn't didn't look at it either. And I found the, the Hebrew Bible that my neighbor had given me as a gift when I was bar mitzvah that I had never opened. Uh-huh. It was in a box that I had put stuff in when I moved from my parents. I'd never unpacked it. It was sitting on the back landing. Now, why? So why, the, why? Why? When you thought when you thought Genesis, why did you think? I can't look at the King James English version. I have to go back to the original Hebrew. What made that connection in your mind? There, there's a, a dozen, dozens of different English translations, and nobody agrees on it. There's only one Hebrew text. Okay. So as so a scientific... You're going to look you know, at a sort. Yeah, it was, it was my sense of the, the translations. You, you wouldn't look at the translation of Shakespeare to look for coding in Okay, okay. I just want to clear that up. So I didn't know any of this. I was just curious. I, I, I was, I, it was, it was just a thought. I, I, so I, so I opened the, the, the text, and it falls open to the first line of Genesis. And I, and you, you know, if you can't read a language, like you, you're watching a, a video from from Russia, and it says Aeroflot on the side of the plane, and you don't really know Cyrillic. You, you know the letters, but you don't know the, the language. You sort of dope them out. You can you can compare them with the arrow flot, and you can make it out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was doing with the Hebrew text. I was looking at the sequence of letters, and I noticed that some of the letters repeated themselves. So I got a bunch of backgammon chips and wrote the letters out on them and started making patterns of the letters in, in always in, in, in the order in the text, but in, in, in different rows and columns and spiral patterns. And I, I spent a lot of time making meaningless patterns, and I took Polaroid pictures of them. There was no computer at the time. And I, I got patterns that were suspicious. There's one that I, I have in my book that I show, which has six lobes to it, and it's symmetrical. And eventually I refined that pattern, and I realized, and I think it's, it's posted up on the screen on your website, um, I realized that it was a regular pattern. Do we, do we know um, which, which number it is? Let me look at the screen, and I'll tell you which one you start. Because for everybody who doesn't know where we're, we're looking, you go to othersideofmidnight.com, go to the yeah, upper right-hand corner, radio with pictures, click on that. That will take you to tonight's guest page. And on tonight's guest page, I have a series of images, graphics from Stan's book, labeled one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. So which image should we be looking at? Well, image number two. Is the first line of the text of Genesis. So we click the one on that. Translated in, the begin- in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And if you look at that sequence of letters and you don't know the language and you just notice the sequence, you find you can divide it up in- into four families. Okay. I'll use the English names. R, R, R and L, T and F. 
H and M and B and Y. And they're, they're not exact cognates. And the reason they're paired, paired up like that is because those letters are in symmetrical positions in the alphabet. See, I was so desperate. I had no idea what was going on. I literally took a Rubik cube and wrote the letters of the alphabet on the Rubik cube. There's 27 cubies. If you count the one in the middle, you can't get to it. It's really just a hub. And there's 27 letters in the full alphabet. And when I did that, I realized that there were letters in mirror image positions. The R's were opposite the L's. The H's were opposite the M's. The T's were opposite the F's. And so I... I this is, on, this is on, on the face of a cube. Yeah, this is, this is number one on your pictures. Okay. On your website. And I took the symmetries of the alphabet on the cube, which it took me a long time to even think to do, and applied them to the first verse. And it divided the first verse into four separate clusters of letters. The R's and the L's, the race is the 201th letter, and the Lamed is the 102th letter in base three. The mirror image counts. Now, let so me ask you, you know, we already established, I think, that you kind of have had this hobby of looking at patterns and grokking an old Heinlein expression, that there's a meta pattern behind a pattern. What, what drove you to do all this work in a language you couldn't read on a, on a text that you didn't understand in Hebrew, just focusing on the letters and began to arrange them in these strange, you know, like putting, putting Hebrew letters on a cube is not something that everybody would do. In high school, I was on the math team, and I never, never got to compete. I was, was not good enough. The captain of that math team turned out to be the last CEO of Metropolitan Life Insurance. That's the quality of people that I was surrounded by. I, had, I wasn't in that league. But I had a, the teacher of that class, Abner Mendelssohn, was a person who had worked on the Manhattan Project. And then he was, now he was a high school math teacher. And he was, he was drilling the, the math team. And he taught us the techniques of visual pattern recognition. If you couldn't answer the question before the teacher had finished putting it on the blackboard, you never got to compete. You were, mm. you were a loser. It, you had to get it back quickly. So I was primed to recognize visual patterns and, and to do these kinds of experiments. I had been drilled in it, and I was surrounded by people that really made you work. They were a lot smarter than me. So somehow, so I, I somehow, somehow in your subconscious, your, your pattern recognition sense, your spidey... My alarms went off and said that this sequence of letters doesn't make sense. This can't be only words. And the more I researched the history of the Hebrew alphabet and the history of the text and the Kabbalistic tradition and the Greek Platonic tradition and the related the Islamic and Sufi traditions, the more I, Christian parallels, the more I researched it, the more I realized that it was a valid thing to do. And when I started getting results, I was able to recognize what they represented eventually. Initially, I didn't know what I was looking at. You wouldn't tell that that from those that Rubik cube. And that first pattern of letters from the first verse, the, the, the next verse, the next part, the, 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 the number three, if you write the letters out on a bead chain in order and curl them up so they pair off as best you, and make it as tight as you can. They so wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We want to now go to Radio with Pictures, um, link number three. Click on Correct. that. And what, what are we looking at here? It looks like... Uh, I don't know. We're looking at the sequence of letters in the first verse of Genesis laid out in order on a spiral on a torus, on a donut. 
Okay. And when you do that, they all pair off, and the pairing is so strong, even though you don't know anything about the pattern or anything about the letters or anything about the purpose of the whole thing, the pattern is so strong that if you were to cover one letter, you could uniquely replace it simply by reference to the other letters in all but one case. So it looks like a code. It, exactly. You can't replace letters if there's not a pattern. If, <laughs> if it's determined, then it's, then it's a code. It's, now, it's, no, it's a right. meaningful pattern. Let me stop you there. Are you, in history, the first guy who's seen this code laid out in no. Hebraic letters? Who, who was someone else no. that did this? I, I would assume this is how it was originally presented. The first word of Genesis, the Reishis, translated in the beginning, can also be translated by, re, by means of a woven matrix, by means of a woven fabric. The text is a, is a textile. The patterns in Genesis were woven. In the ancient world, if you wanted to make hyperdimensional models, four-dimensional surfaces, you wove them. You got floppy sombreros. That's how you could research higher than three-dimensional forms in the ancient world without a, without no, a wait, computer. Wait, you've taken a huge leap from our three-dimensional reality to hyper-dimensions. How do we get there? And well, I'm explaining how, how, they, how they came to do this. If you needed to model hyper-dimensional forms, one way you could do it is by weaving and crocheting and, and that kind okay, of thing. Okay, okay. And Exodus tells us that to, to build, to make the Torah, they had to know how to weave, broke, what's the word? Weave and broader and brocade. Oh, okay. The text was woven. If you read the text, okay. the stories in the Bible tell you how to handle the text in the message. So basically, you're saying that in Genesis, you got, you kind of got into the idea that there may be another set of messages in the text that wasn't the plain text, you know, in the beginning, et cetera, but actually depended on the letter positions themselves. I'm saying that there, this is a, a mathematical geometric form. It, it, it unfolds. It's embryonic. It grows. It unfurls. It's fractal. It, it's modeling a living system. It's been taught that the Torah is a living, a living thing, and this has qualities of a living system. It's self-embedded. It, it, it's, re, it's reflexive. Uh, it has qualities of, of, of compactness, and it has geometric qualities that, that, are, that are essential for carrying information and preserving it. Okay, so and what, it's what you could, could have done in the ancient world. It doesn't require any mo modern technique. So what happened next in your search? Well, I, I tried to make the pattern as compact as I could, and I got the pattern number um, right next to it on, on your site, which is, let me pull it down. Link number four. Link number four. Excuse me? Yeah, click on link number four. Number four. And number four I call a Shushan flower. Shushan means six. It's a six-floor six flower, three-fleet. Three double florets. So it's a Sushan flower. It's a cube. It's, it's a, is, it a, is it also a six-petal flower? The cube is the matrix on which these six petals emerge. Okay. So if you go through the center of the cube to each face, you spiral out to each face, flip along the edge, and spiral back in. The, the, the two smaller drawings on the right and left show actual at the, the, right, at, the at the bottom at the bottom okay 
And what you've got, and if you go in my book, there's something called the loss loss, which shows how you can unfurl oh, uh, the platonic form, the embryonic form. Something called the what? Lahav sloth, L-A-H-A-V. And what it is is a sequence of of geometric forms that unfurl embryologically, like an embryo. Point, line, surface, volume, hypervolume. And when you do that, you get the, the five. You, you get other explanations for other discussions in Kabbalistic literature. We don't have to go there now. But what you what you get here is a way of looking at the first the, the letters on that form on the Shushan flower are the letters of the first verse of Genesis in order. And as you can see, the opposite pairs are are, are mirror images of each other. Each, each one is, is a reflection. So the sequence this is of more, is this actually is a, this, forming this box. This is a more elaborate sequence, version of your Rubik's Cube presentation. It's, it's not a Rubik's Cube. It's a, it's a hypercube or a cube octahedron, but it's related. Okay. And what, what you can, what you can see from this is that if you connect the head and tail of the first verse, the forms are described as, or, as an Ouroboros, a snake that eats its tail. Um, if you connect it up this way, you get mirror images on opposite sides. That's the the form that defines a torus and th- a three torus. A two torus is the, I'm getting a little tongue tied here. To make a two torus, you take a square. A two torus is an ordinary donut, and you connect the left and right sides, which makes a tube. Then you connect the top and the bottom of the tube, and it makes a donut. Okay. Well, if you do that with with, a, with six sides, with three pairs, you get left to right, top to bottom, and front to back. And when you do that, all the letters in the first verse are determined, they're paired up, and they they, they cluster in, in this form. Okay, I'll tell you what, we're at now, the bottom. These, these, the details are in the books. It, it's a little hard to do it on. In, no, no, no. And, and look, everybody's going to have to go and look at the Meru site, the, the Meru Foundation site, which is linked under... That's actually just above uh, Stan's bio tonight. And look at these, and it takes a lot of reading to begin to grok, to grasp the magnitude. So let me read a couple of testimonials from the beginning of your work. These now go back decades. There's a, I have one here from Joseph Schultz, Ph.D., who is Professor Emeritus of the Oppenstein Brothers Distinguished Professor of Judaic Studies at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He said some years ago, Stan Tenen's discovery of the geometric forms and the mathematical symbols that lie behind the Hebrew letters in the text of the Hebrew Bible is revolutionary, and its implications, once spelled out, could equal the importance of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and perhaps even surpass it. Um, just hold it there. We're, as I Can said, I make a, sum- a, quick sum- a quick summary statement? I'm saying that if you pair off the letters in the first verse of Genesis, it folds up into a form which we are going to shortly discover generates all of the letters used to write the text. The first thing you do in a code is to give the code. You give the keys. You, can, you, have, you have the starting point. The first thing you have to give when you, you, you have an alphabet is the letters. Yep. What we get from this, this form is, is a model hand which, when you make gestures, generates all the Hebrew letter shapes. Okay, we will, so we, will, instantly, we, will, we will get into the hand stuff, but we do have to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. One other surprise tonight is uh, Bobby Bright, who is the 
gentleman, the um, songs, song maker, the composer from Australia who composed one of the alternate forms of our original um, uh, Other Side of Midnight theme. He also has sent us some remarkable music, a whole album, in fact. So we're going to be playing some of his music in the breaks tonight. This one you're going to want to listen to. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. This is from Rabbi Dr. Meyer Sendor. There are certain texts for a scholar of the Kabbalah that are almost impossible to interpret and to read properly without some awareness of what Stan Tennant is doing and his explorations in these sacred geometries. It's as if you get the key to understanding the text once you grasp what Stan is really talking about. There are other scholars of the history of the Kabbalah as well as practicing Kabbalists who are excited about Stan's work for this very reason. His work is very solidly grounded and disciplined thought. It's important to appreciate this and distinguish this from other things that are out there in the world. Uh, let me introduce now uh, Lavana, who is Stan's wife and his uh, colleague and assistant and uh, general factotum and has been with him for as long as Stan and I have known each other. When we, when we played music at the break, Stan made some mention that someone has actually composed music using this code to basically uh, represent tones? Uh, yes, actually. Um, and that was not I, one of them. Uh, yeah. Um, his name is Daniel Gill. And uh, we met him, oh, gee, maybe 10, 15 years ago when we were still living in Massachusetts. Uh, Daniel is a uh, graduate of Berkeley School of Music. He's got, uh, he's a, performer he's a composer but uh when we when we met him we were looking for somebody to work with the first verse of genesis with the letters and turn it into music now if anyone has um if any one of your listeners has already seen our stuff and seen our dvds there was another composer many years ago who composed a microtonal version uh based on the sequence of Hebrew letters in the first verse of Genesis, but we wanted something different. And uh, Daniel is a classical composer. He's an orchestral composer. But when we first talked to him, um, he was kind of reluctant to do it. He didn't think that it would be much of an interesting project because it seemed sort of tame to him. 
but he did, he agreed, and so he took the text. Now he is a yeshiva educated person, as well as being a, a graduate of Berkeley School of Music, as I said. Um, so he brought his life's background of being involved in these um, in these sacred texts to his work as a musician and as a composer. Well, he started working, and he, he you know worked with the letters, assigning them different tones, assigning them different uh, different uh, lengths of the time that you hold it. Um, he excuse me, he, he created a system for bringing out some of the patterns musically that were in, uh, that were in the first three verses, actually, as far as he got. Mm-hmm. Well, from going from being reluctant, he went, I think we got four phone calls that evening. The last one was something like, you know, 1230 or 1 a.m., which was really <laughs> unusual for a bedroom town in Sharon, Massachusetts, believe me. Um, you know, saying, there's music happening here. There is music here. You know, it's like he was totally stunned. And from that point on, uh, you know, he was hooked. I well, mean, what are the okay. odds that you would take a random verse of anything and be able to set the letters to musical tones and have it come out coherent, let alone sounding interesting. I, d- I don't really know, um, but I do know that, of course, from his point of view, as someone who went to yeshiva and who's lived in that in that um, that atmosphere, there was no way that the letters of Genesis could be random. Uh, studying the letters in addition to the text is a traditional thing to do. Um, you know, it, it's it's a very it's accepted that the letters are special and that the letters have um, you know additional meanings besides making words. Nobody knows what they are, you know, or nobody knows a whole lot about it. But they know that it's it's a it's an accepted frame of mind in which to approach this project. Well, anyway, uh, so Daniel com- completed. The Creation Overture, which you can hear for free on his own website, which I'd like to give over the air. We didn't have a chance to, to type it in. Oh, sure. But it's very simple. It's uh, www.jewsmusic.com. That's J-E-W-S-M-U-S-I-C, just like it sounds. Um, hmm. I wonder the, if, if when Stan and I are talking, I can actually go there and play some of this music, because now that you've titillated everybody, they're going to want to hear the music. Um, I can play it on this computer, I think. I, th- I, I think oh, it's good. probably better if Richard, if, if you can do it, or... Should I try? Try, try, well, please. I, I, no, it's gonna, I am, no, better be somebody it's, else do it, actually. Yeah, better somebody else do it, or you, or you can do well, it. Well, let's, um, let's see what happens. You, uh, no, that, that's not it, Stanley. Oh, you got it. Okay. Let's see if it'll play. Let's start over. Okay. Lavana, why don't you give me the uh, the website again, and I'll try to call up here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, why don't you give it to me here? I think we can get a much better version. Okay. 
All right. Okay. Stop it, stop it, Sterling. Yeah, coming through the phone, yeah. it doesn't work too well. So give it to me right. slowly. Okay. It's www.jewsmusic.com. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to tell you which link it is. All right. I've got it now. Daniel Gill. And let's just do new tabs so I can go there. (laughs) This is real-time radio, folks. Would it be under recordings? (laughs) Would Would it be under recordings? Uh, it is under... I see the Four Worlds, the Mystical Awakening, Songs of Casidum, Creation Overture. The Creation Overture, that's Okay, it. clicking on Creation Overture. And then we do this, and let's hope that it works. It does! No, you won't, because I'm... Oh my gosh, this is fascinating. I don't know what that is. That's the first four gen- uh, phrase, uh, phrases, uh, verses of Genesis. No, that uh, that particular section is, I think, the first. Uh, that actually is the first word. The first word. Yeah, he he takes ten minutes worth of music to go through the first three verses. Oh my um, gosh. The, the system, I, I can't in detail uh, repeat for you exactly what his system is, uh, but uh, because I, I, I've forgotten the details, frankly. Um, but okay. basically, if you know his system, you can go backwards from the score and wind up with the first three verses of Genesis. If that's, what it's, it's, that's exactly what you're hearing. Amazing. Um, so anyway, okay. uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm looking for my volume control, and I can't quite find it in real time. Anyway, that's that's fantastic. That's amazing. That is contained in the first verses of Genesis. Yes. That's just absolutely astounding. So, Stan, if we can bring you back in. There is a code yeah. in in Genesis, and you just heard part of it. So where well, did that, you? That's why we. Go ahead. The reason we decided to play it musically it was to verify that what I thought I was intuiting visually was actually there. The first version of this, I I had a a Casio keyboard. <laughs> it was one of these little portable toy things in in. At the time, that's all there was, and I played it out note by note, and I decided for myself that it had structure. This, this, with Daniel, is much more sophisticated and much later. But yeah, I, it was. We originally put it to music to see if we could discern if there was anything like a pattern. 
this is so reminiscent of me looking at, you know, images from Mars and looking at geometric patterns on the surface of another planet and saying, oh, my God, that has to be artificial. The pattern. Well, we now know what the geometry is, which is even more important. This is the geometry of life. This is the, these are the, 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 this is the golden rule. Now, you know the crazy story about the lunatic that we had to deal with, that was dealing with the other, with the number. It's not the number. It's the principle. Don't do to others what's hateful to you. Do unto others what you would like them to do to you. Turn the other cheek. Those golden rules, if you follow them, are what generates these patterns. Hmm. And, and so what they're literally doing is projecting a way of seeing the universe, a way of living in the world, on anybody who engages the text, whether you read it or listen to it or explore it visually, um, weave, weave it, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it, it's going to rub off on you this self-referential, this wheel of karma, this idea of what goes around comes around, action and reaction, Gog and Magog. And if you master that, then, you follow, then you're honoring the last of the five Ten Commandments. Those are the, last, the five final commandments. Are all, don't be jealous. Don't steal, don't rob, and they're all based on the, on the way our mirror neurons work. Hmm. Yeah, and this is and this is what we mean. Why we called the book what we did, you know, the alphabet that changed the world. How Genesis preserves a science of consciousness in geometry and gesture. This is a manifestation. You know, uh, you, you're listening to the structure of that science of consciousness when you listen to the music. Well, let me. And let it's me, beginning. Let me, it unfurls. At the, at the like risk, a living thing. At, at the risk of embarrassing you, let me read what Ralph Abram, Abraham, Ph.D., who was the former chair of mathematics at UC Santa Cruz, said a few years ago. "Quote: I've been following Stan's work for two decades. He has made crucial discoveries on the history of the alphabet, the deeper levels of meaning of sacred texts, and the role of mathematics in the history of consciousness. In my opinion." He is among the most important students of Kabbalah in recent times. I cannot recommend his work too highly. So let's go back to your work. Where did you go next after you started poking around with the idea that musical patterns is one way to apprehend this, this underlying subtext in, in, in Genesis? Well, where did I go next? What I had to do was pull it all together, get to the bottom of it. I didn't have the fun of the initial principles. I had intriguing patterns, but I didn't know how they related to each other. I didn't know how they historically. I, I, I didn't know what to do with them. And it took years of reading and studying to, to get some sense of what was out there. I took it as far as I could on my own before I went to see what other results were. So I, I'd come up with some ideas. And I explored them. Um, and the most important idea is that, well, there are two fundamental ideas. One is that everything in science and everything in metaphysics and spirituality is based on the golden rule. That's the, the, the foundation of everything. And um, That's the do unto other rule. Yeah, the, the idea is, is what goes around comes around. And... Explicit finding is that the Hebrew letters in particular, and a particular Hebrew alphabet, and likely also the Greek and Arabic letters in, in particular alphabets, come from hand gestures. And because they come oh, from wait, hand wait, wait, gestures... Wait, 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 w
holding her hands up and waving them around in the air. Well, what you discover when you make these geometric models, as I described in the book, I literally, it's hard to know how far back up. We, we know that in the Greek tradition, supposedly Apollo um, created the Greek alphabet from an apple. Okay. And, and we also know the story of the apple in the Garden of Eden or some other fruit. There's all kinds of fruit that's described. But one of the fundamental ideas is, is, uh, is an apple. Um, and, and an apple is the culmination of, of an apple tree. An apple seed grows into a, a stem, into, into branches, and fruit forms on it. And it it's, a marvel, it's a life cycle. It represents the whole life cycle. And then if you pick it... So I drew, I drew the, the culminating fruit in the pattern on the, the apple. There's a picture in, in my book where I take the 310 torus knot, which is one of the ways you can pair off the letters, similar to, to diagram four here. And I, and I drew it on the surface of the apple. And I took the apple in my hand, and I realized, wait a minute, remember that old picture in the Gnostic literature of Hermes Trismegistos holding up the world in his hand with his thumb sticking up the, the, the South Pole? Remember that? You see that he holds oh, it up in his hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I did that to the apple. I stuck <laughs> my thumb up the bottom of a plastic ice bucket apple, and noticed it fit exactly between the lines of the knot that was formed by pairing off the leathers. And there were six of them. I took one of them out and put it on my hand and made gestures. And in, in the, each gesture, you could see the outline of the Hebrew letter. And not only that, no, wait, wait, wait. Are, 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 we, are we talking something similar to that game where you have a candle or a flashlight and you hold your hands up in front of it and on a, you project it on a screen? So that you see the... that, that that would work. That would work. Except the screen is your own eyes, and the and the hand is in is your own hand. Okay. The model is in your own hand. So okay. you're always viewing the hand from your own perspective because it's your hand. It comes into your mind's eye, and as you move your hand and make gestures, you describe things. If you make the gesture for round, where you sort of cup a basketball, you literally see in sequence the Hebrew letters that spell the word word round. This is astonishing. Each Hebrew letter has a name. Each Hebrew letter has a name. So to make if sure... You look in the dictionary at that name and, and treat it as a verb, you discover you see the shape of that letter when you make their gesture that corresponds to that name. So wait a minute. Let me back up here. If What you're saying is that if you look at your hand gestures from the perspective of your own brain up through your two eyes and you're holding your hands yep. out in front and you're making yep. shapes... Those shapes correlate to the Hebraic letter forms. You can yes, if you trace your if you uh, you've got to sort it out. The, the first verse folds itself up into this geometric form, which includes six copies of, of this model hand. When you put the model hand on your hand and make gestures you see the outline of all the different letters. You see each letter in a gesture that corresponds to the meaning of its name. And it turns out in Hebrew tradition today, if you go into a synagogue, people will put on a tefillin strap and they wind it on their arm and on their hand and on their, and their fingers, and you're supposed to see three letters. Well, the model I, 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 I've recovered demonstrates all of the letters from the same principle. Now, if we go if to your website... 
Yeah, I was going yes. to hit, hit <laughs> Milvana. I think we're going to the same place. If you go to yes. Meru.com, I'm sorry, Meru.org, www.meru.org, about halfway down the first page, on the right-hand side, there is a, a video of Stan making these gestures in terms of the letter shapes uh, that he's just described. So you can see it visually if you, again, go to othersideofmidnight.com, click on Radio with Pictures in the upper right-hand corner. That takes you down to the guest page. Scroll down. Go into the Meru link on the guest page just above Stan's bio. That takes you to the Meru.org uh, site. On the right-hand side, halfway down, there is Stan making these gestures with his hands that correspond to the Hebrew letters. Amazing. Now, I understand that Stan about 15 years ago. <laughs> we weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> but we do notice he has not cut his hair. <laughs> this is absolutely true. Anyways, Stan, go ahead. Just, well, the idea, so we had to find out everything we could about this hand model, and we were able to interpret Kabbalistic texts that refer to hand models, and we realized what must have happened. You know, if you ask a scholar, whether it's an academic scholar or a religious scholar today, what's the source of the Hebrew alphabet? They're going to say, well, it's the little letter Yud, the iota, the jot, the dot, the smallest letter, Yud. Yud means hand, took that small truth, and it displaced the greater truth, that all of the letters come from a, a, a model hand, a whole hand. It's not that one letter means hand and that it's the smallest element of all the other letters. It's that there's a greater truth, that the high, all of the letters come from gestures of a hand. Now, wh why would you do that? The reason you do that is just to be able to coordinate dance, whether it's a meditation or a dance in the world. Eventually, I read about the, that Rumi's poetic description of the Mevlavi Sufi round dance. And if you read the description of the Sufi round dance, it matches the geometry in the first verse of Genesis. Wait, wait, so the Sufi wait, 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 round wait, wait. dance, which is the basis of the mystical tradition in Sufism, is in the first verse. Which has nothing to do with Judaism or the Hebraic alphabet, supposedly. Oh, it has everything to do with it, because all of these faiths are based on humility. But I said And they're teaching humility to different Stan, populations in different ways. Stan. I said supposedly you're found oh, you have found sorry. connections that other yes. people apparently have have not seen that's what non trivial non trivial connections it's easy to find the trivial connections it's easy to to, to find the mistakes the, the superficial explanations which is what we've all been satisfied with but in fact I'm saying the text of Genesis preserves letter by letter a sequence of gestures of a mental dance and an external dance a sufi dance that leads to an experience of the transcendent in the real world. I'm saying that these meditational exercises can lead to the emergence of an objective activity in the real world. There's a connection between mind and body, between consciousness and physics, and this is the link, and it's in our mind's eye. Hmm. And this was known in, in the Western traditions for centuries. The, the, I, I sent you that quote I came upon recently that shows that the Greek tradition had the same model that I ultimately found, which is a model of the golden rule. As above, so below, what goes around comes around. You put those together, you get this particular geometry, 
you take it through the the the, the dimensions, you you'll see on on your page number six shows how you can take this inverted T geometry, which we haven't talked about, and take it up through the dimensions to the model hand shape. And number eight, just below it, summarizes this idea of the two golden rules. As above, so below, and what goes around comes around. And that's exactly what Proclus describes Plato as describing in the Timaeus as the foundation of the Greek system. And no one knows that this is real. Well, there are a few people do, including a lot of people now listening to this show this morning or this evening or this afternoon, wherever on the planet you happen to be. So let's go back to the unfurling of this code, this mystery. Um, after, okay. after you got into the hand gestures, what happened yes. next? Well, it's hard to say. Um, a, a lot of things were going on simultaneously. It's a lot of years, yes, The most I know. important thing to me was, was to, to unfurl this system as far as I could on my own and then read what the experts and the scholars said to see if I'd hit the same answers as, as they had. I was going to use what was currently known as a, as a checksum on, on what I found. So I had to develop my theories first. And along the way, they became more and more refined and things became clearer. And eventually we were able to, to write the book. So the book summarizes what happened over the next 10 or 15 years. And it, all we really did was, was put everything together and sort it out. We also produced a, a, a sequence of videotape lectures, in, mostly in the late 80s and, and in the 1990s, which outlined the research as it was happening. So if you want to know what I was doing when, the, the videotape series, which are now DVDs, um, we document that. And then, then we moved to, from Marin County here, north of San Francisco, to Sharon, Massachusetts, which is, has a, an Orthodox Jewish population, people that have yeshiva educations. And I went and learned what, the, what was being taught traditionally, which I hadn't had access to before, at least not from people who could read the text directly. Um, the, the musician Daniel Gill that we were talking about earlier did some of the translation. There's an appendix in the book, a little short little piece where he translated it for us, and and then started to use the, the our findings. So it's a matter of interacting with people, and and in interacting with the Orthodox Jewish world, I learned what had been preserved and what had been lost. Apparently, none of this is known currently. The last remnants of it seem to be traces go about back about 200 years. It looks like when Napoleon liberated the Jews as citizens, he also persecuted Jewish leadership and attempted to replace Jewish and Christian leadership with his own leadership because he thought he was the sun god when he got back from Egypt. Mm. So he persecuted the rabbis. The rabbis in, in Russia allied with the Tsar. He literally hunted down and, 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 and the rabbi that was the leader of the Hasidic tradition at the time died in the snows of Russia burnt, to burn his own library to try to escape. So everything was lost around 1800, around 1810. And there's no traces I can find of a coherent discussion of these ideas that are any later than that. Well, the pogroms, these ideas, the pogroms mm -hmm. and the inquisitions roll through and information is systematically destroyed because obviously there are people that don't want this kind of information out there. Uh, what I it's like mostly destroyed in ignorance. It's just destroyed by people who don't see its value. Like the talent, like the, 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 the terrorists in the Middle East now burning down the the, hmm. the the heritage of the Middle East is being destroyed. They they 
filing down the, ru- the ruins and, okay. and burning the archives. We are at the top of the hour. And so what we need to do is take another break. What I'd like to do is to um, actually play some more of this amazing music, which is, remember, the unfoldment of the letters of Genesis as done by Stan Tenen, set to music by his friend Daniel Gill. And this is what you get. You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. We are back on the other side of midnight, and uh, my producer, Scott, whispered in our ears a very interesting question. We all know from common experience, uh, if, if we play a game at parties called telephone, where you whisper in someone's ear, and it goes around a circle, and the next person repeats it in the next person's ear, and it goes around and goes around, and when it comes back to the original person, it, re- it re- represents nothing uh, of, of the original message, the original whispering, the original whatever. Uh, Stan, are you there? Yeah. Okay. How do we yeah. know, how do you know that the Hebraic texts that you're decoding bear any similarity to Hebrew texts going back thousands of years when they, when this was originally composed and that the code that you're finding is not just, you know, randomness projected against randomness? Well, it, it, it's taken a long time to become confident that that's the case. Obviously, you, that's an open question. Um, the discovery of these patterns, though, is the demonstration that, that they're real, and that you can't make patterns out of nonsense this way. In other words, Maybe a thousand monkeys cannot write the Encyclopedia Britannica given a billion years. No, that's, 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 it's not only that, but you don't, you don't end up with a meaningful model that does something. Even if you can find patterns in a, in a text and you force fit it, it doesn't generally fold up into a form that generates shadows as hand gestures of all the letters used to write the text. That's a pretty hard thing to do at, by accident. That's and there that's... are discussions of the, of, 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 that describe this process which have not been understood for centuries. Like this quote I sent you from Proclus. No one realizes that the Greek discussion is the same as the Hebrew discussion because they were translated in so many, so very different times and ways. Hmm. It's the translations that keep varying. The, 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 the coherence, the integrity of the biblical text is good as people think. Um, the oldest complete copy of the text is the Leningrad Codex, which is only about a thousand years old and was composed by Karaite Jews who don't believe in the Talmud and not many are left today. And it's only a thousand years old. The older Aleppo Codex was partially destroyed when Israel came into being by the people who had it in Syria. Um, there aren't really complete texts that go back much much farther than that. But there there are sections and there and there are texts that quote parts of the of the of the Torah of the Bible. 
the opening line is heavily quoted. It, it occurs many different places. And what we're using is the standard and most compact and most documented form. Now, but there could be mistakes. Didn't you and, find... And if, there had been, if there had been spurious letters or if there had been letters added, I couldn't have made the toroidal pattern. Mm. There would have been a hole. Okay. You see, what we found is actually the proof of, that answers the question. What we found is the demonstration that these aren't act, random patterns. Didn't you that, also that, that find that... The claims that... of the rabbis are actually true. All right. Didn't you find also that there are little taglets or I forget what the technical term is on the yeah, decorations of the decorations on the Keterim and Tagin. Keterim means crowns and Tagin means tags. Okay. Little markings on the tops of the letters. No one understands what, where they come from. We've been able to explain one set. There are so-called triple Tagin, which are little crowns, Keterim. It turns out the letters that, are, that have these markings are on the corners of a tetrahedron that sits inside of, of the, the torus, just like your model to some extent. And each of the corners has a little triple crown, looks just like the decoration. And one of them, one set of letters has one triple crown, the next set is two, the next is three, the axes of the figure. The crowns appear to preserve the coordinate system of the Rubik cube for viewing the letters. So it has an internal self-correcting code. Yeah, it's not, not random. We, we found an explicit meaning. That doesn't mean if, if, we, if that was the only fact we had, it wouldn't be good enough. But if you put 20 of these odd facts together, then you start to smell that there's something going on. In other words, the probability yeah. of this being accidental or coincidence or you're projecting is, <clears throat> pardon the pun, astronomical. Yes, it, it, well, it's more than a statistical. It's not even a statistical question. What we found are woven patterns, and the first word of the first verse says, "By means of a woven network," and is a teaching that the text is ordered letter, word, verse, chapter, book. There's a hierarchical discussion description of the text. We found that hierarchy, and it fits the descriptions. It's kind of an identification. And not only that, but what you get is meaningful and useful. You get a generating form for all the letters, and it's the one form that connects the mind and the world, our hand. The one form that stands equally in consciousness and in physics is our hand. Now you and mentioned... It represents, go ahead. It represents our will. All right. You mentioned that you'd found parallels, uh, which basically you think translate to the same uh, epa meta message in the ancient Greek. What about other cultures, other religions, other You'll find you'll find in one of the appendices to the alphabet that changed the world, there's a drawing called Churning the Ocean of Milk, which is a traditional Hindu drawing. Now if you find Hindus and rabbis today who believe that each other that they're connected, you you'll have a hard time. Everyone thinks that Hinduism is kind of paganish and idolatrous and Hebrews is kind of rational and, and and very strict and narrow. We're finding the same element in the Hindu tradition as we're finding in the Hebrew tradition. The continuous creation model that we have been drawing for about 30 years now turns out to match element by element the elements of churning the ocean of milk in the Hindu tradition. It's one of the appendices at the end of the book. Well, this then starts to look like there was an ancient body of knowledge that yes. got fragmented 
And, yes. what, we're, and what we're seeing on the surface when we look at uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. The rabbis call it the, the Academy of Shem and Eber. And it's supposed to have existed before Abraham. And it's where the Hebrew patriarchs studied. It, mythologically, no one, no one knows if this is real. But there's a tradition that there is a, a, an earlier source. My guess is what we're looking at here is perennial tradition that was global, that was absorbed into the Egyptian system and taken, de-idolatrized by Moses and taken out, then became independent again that we're looking at the remnants of what's been preserved, a perennial tradition. And it's a perennial tradition, and it's the same for everyone, because it's logically minimal. It's not based on any idolatrous external image. It's based on a point, a line, and a circle. So it's ultimately geometric, and ultimately mathematical, and that's the... Geometric, embryological, it's the embryo it's a geometric embryology. After a point, line, surface, volume, hypervolume is a kind of geometric embryology. But, but Stan, that, 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 that points to some ancient global holistic knowledge that then got fragmented in various separate cultures and religions and traditions that we're looking at that ultimately, I mean, this is pretty incendiary and fascinating stuff. Because well, means, the most refined versions are, are the, the, the Torah version is the most abstract and refined version. It's, it's, it's the reason why the one God of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam can claim the highest status is because it sits at the highest level of abstraction. It's the highest abstraction, and it subsumes all the other embodiments. It's not a, my culture against your culture. My God is bigger than your God. My God is a mountain. Your God is a cloud. We fight with each other. That's not it. It's that the Western tradition embodies the highest abstraction, a singularity, a line, and a surface, and what comes from that. It's literally, you could, it tumbles out of your hand, a cornucopia, a geometric cornucopia tumbling out of your hand, the alphabet and all the forms in the world, and in, in science and in culture. But that means that all of this current insanity, where ISIS is trying to kill other Muslims and Muslims are, you know, ISIS is trying to kill Jews. They're a-holes. Everybody knows that. I don't think we can say that on the radio, okay? I but, said a. But, but in other words, your what you have discovered, and Stan, this is this is mind blowing. You're saying that if you follow these various traditions back from the most yeah. recent, which is Muhammad, to the most ancient, which is the Hindu, ultimately they're all telling us at the fundamental level the same thing it's pre-hindu the hindu is derivative also uh, that was uh, and, let there, me give but... you the sequence let me give you the sequence you, you know this from your own experience when you move and look for a new house or a new car everyone has the same experience the first thing you do when you're searching for a new place to live is you make a list of what you want the concepts you get the concept clear in your mind then you, you get the newspaper and you go online and you start reading the ads and you start looking at apartments and houses and you, you do the legwork. You, you put in the effort. You, you carry the burden. And the very day that you give up on finding what you're looking for, that's when the phone rings and you get what you were looking for. Clear thinking, hard work, and letting go is the manifesting principle. Everyone uses it all the time. Seed, tree, and fruit. Conception, gestation, and birth. 
Judaism, Christianity, and Islam form a cycle. Judaism yields Christianity. Christianity yields Islam, and Islam yields Judaism. One of the fundamental purposes of Islam is the protection of Israel. I'm saying the Muslim scholars, the kids on their smartphones, will discover this for themselves pretty soon now. Not from us, not from your program, not from what I've been saying for 20 years. The natural, the, the, the rational conclusion, the model, not a prophecy, this is a model. The model could be wrong. But the model says the seed of Judaism grows the tree of Christianity, which grows the fruit of Islam. When the fruit is on the ground, it rots and goes to war with the seed, which is what's happening now. But when the war is over, new fruit grows on the tree with a new womb, with new seed, which the fruit protects. And from that new fruit becomes the new cycle. Judaism, Christianity, Islam is a three-cycle, an embryonic cycle, a ternary, trinary count, just like the alphabet. This and it's going the, on right now, and we're embedded in it. This is astonishing stuff, Stan. This is absolutely world-changing if people apprehend it. And you're saying that it doesn't have to be taught to the current generation. They will discover it on their own? A, a, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn can't look into the Torah and come back and tell Muslims that their purpose is to protect Israel. That's going to go about as far as, a, as an ice cube at, at the equator. It, it ain't going to work. But the tradition says that this new generation, as, as once the you can see it for yourself, the closest, simplest description of what's going on in the Mideast now is a fruit rotting on the ground, destroying itself. 20 different diseases in 12 different directions. But when that fruit is dissolved, is finished, and the new season starts, new fruit starts to grow. And that new fruit protects its seed. And all of the previous stuff inverts. Everything flips. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, I don't know that. I'm not a prophet. I'm saying the models of self-organization based on the golden rule and this understanding of the alphabet that we've recovered from Genesis and the Torah tradition is suggesting this model, and this model suggests this is what's going to happen. And, now, you, and, and, you, and, and you're saying that other scholars like yourself, but from other traditions, if they'd had this insight, if they'd had this, uh, I don't want to use the word channeling or whatever happened to you that made you look at that pattern after you saw the, you know, the prisoner and want to look at Genesis, if they'd had a similar parallel experience in these other traditions, well, they would arrive at the same place eventually that you have arrived? I, I think what we're looking at is each of these traditions is like a different organ in a, a universal, a, a global body politic. We each contribute something. We have a common DNA, but we do different jobs. We have different fuel. We have different metabolisms, and we have to trust that the others are doing their jobs. That, that this organic global model is is the, is the core model here, and that it's going to be discovered by everyone from their own perspective. If they, what I did is is how I came upon it. What happens in other cultures and, and other places is going to be different. There may even be different hand gestures in, in in different locations. It's the principle of projecting your gestures to generate a dance, a meditation in the mind and in the world that you can experience and share with others and change the world by means of. 
we haven't talked about any real the, the physics here yet, but there's some very deep physics here. And I'm saying it's inevitable. My methods are not going to be the, the methods that others use. Others will use different methods. Well, given but that it's the, happening very quickly. Given that the major problem on the planet now seems to be that we're all separate fragments fighting each other because we've forgotten that we're all ultimately one, this is, this is amazing. That's the most widely spoken language on the planet. I think it's English. English. Do you know that you can translate English roots and Hebrew roots and they have the same meaning? If you take out the vowels, the Hebrew root for, a, for grow is Zerah, Zion, Resh, Ayin. Zion is a G, Resh is an R, and Ayin is an O. Grow means grow. The Hebrew letter Aleph is the highest letter. It means the greatest abstraction. A-L-P is an Alp. It's a mountain. It's a very high mountain. It's <laughs> oh, a wow. and a roof. What? I said, wow. Yeah, wow. Well, maybe, you can what, read what, what, English yeah. and Hebrew as the same system at the root level. And thus, the most common language on the earth already is going to be the one that's going to continue to do what it's been doing, absorbing everything. See, the remarkable difference between your work and what's coming is that your work was done almost in the Stone Age where you had to take Polaroid pictures of, of um, you know, little, little... Well, that uh, demonstrates that you don't need modern high-tech to do it. If I'd, if I'd used supercomputers to do it, what would it have told us about the ancient world? But, but... That's I have not, to that's use their not, techniques. But that's not I have to limit myself to their techniques. No, 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 that's not where I'm going. Where I'm going okay. is where I'm going is now. Other people in other cultures, like like in Islam, have the advantage of social media, where what one person or ten people find can, communi- can communicate it around the world at the speed of light by, by tomorrow morning. So the right. the painstaking decades of work you put into this, and the efforts to get scholars and academia and rabbis and the traditional you know break uh, uh, researchers even to begin to think about the possibility will be so collapsed in time because, again, as people are hearing us and looking at those diagrams, it's going around the world, the speed of light on screens that are being held in hands by people we will never meet. You think? I, I know. I know. Let me tell you something. Why did I call the book The Alphabet That Changed the World? You don't know something. The past tense in the Torah language of Hebrew indicates the future. The alphabet that changed the world actually means the alphabet that will change the world. Okay. Is that a it's kind the of... Once, it's the once and future alphabet. Fascinating. The once and future king. Absolutely fascinating. Um, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me kind of get myself together here because this is, this is staggering. This means that all of what's going on now is totally, totally, Pre- totally pointless. No, it's preamble. But it's a preamble. It's can, preamble. Can, can we shorten the preamble? Can we get to where people realize that they have so much more in common than they have separately? I mean, this ISIS cult has taken the most radical positions of, of Muhammad and is basically trying to bring on the end of the world. Maybe, maybe the yeah. idea of the end of the world is that, remember that famous song, The End of the World as We Know It? To That's every, right. It's the to, end of the metaphor. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of the the metaphor of the world. Interesting. 
Interesting. It's what changes is our worldview, not the world. We change. The world doesn't change. Okay, let's go back to othersideofmidnight.com, radio with pictures. Let's look at number six. Click on number six because I want you to, you know, amplify on the golden rule and how we get that from the from from these letter shapes. Okay, let's bring that one up. It turns out if you go through all of this time and effort. You can reduce everything that I've been discussing to two lines, a vertical line with a point on top and a horizontal line. And the horizontal line is understood as a, as a one circle. It's intrinsically a circle, but in one dimension, it's just a line segment. And that represents the vertical line is as above and the horizontal line is so below. Ah. And it turns out if you make that triangle, it fits the descriptions in all the Kabbalistic literature and everyone's missed it. It turns out that the angle is given explicitly in many different places. I, I don't want to start with my book now, but there's, it, it's, it's, it's explicit. It only took you 30 you, years it, to write the book, also, Stan. The I way, think we can is, plug the book, yes. Well, not only does, is this the golden rule, but it actually also generates the numerical golden mean, the thing that I had to fight the nut over 20 <laughs> years ago. Oh, how interesting. So it actually subsumes... Well, it, it shows how even the, even nasty people are working for the good, even though they don't, don't know it. This jerk challenged me to discover what the actual shape was, which led to my finding what it was, which led to, to the meaning that we've got now. If he hadn't challenged me, I might not have gotten to this. If one wanted to get metaphysical. Event, you take the initial model of as above, so below, and what goes around comes around, and you bring it up to, to 2D, the vertical line, the axis, is still a single axis. But the horizontal area becomes now a surface. You go into 3D, the axis stays the same. But the, the span becomes a volume and then a hypervolume. And one-sixth of that hypervolume is the hand that I drew on the side of that ice bucket apple hmm. that generates all of the letters. And it's also described in the literature mathematically as it's related to a 24 cell. And it turns out there was a reference that the Egyptians may actually have known that the 27 lines that solve the general cubic equation define the surface of a hypersphere. Now, I have a reference for that, but it's, it's, it's kind of hard to believe because they didn't have algebra, so they couldn't have said it that way. But they did have a way of understanding how the 27-letter system of the full alphabet defined the hyperdimensional space, and it turns out we've recovered now how that relates to consciousness. So this incredibly at, sophisticated system you're now believing is, is descendant from a, a, a different world, a different culture, a different planet than the most it's ancient perennial. cultures. It's perennial. It's perennial. It's like a living thing. It's rediscovered and lost and plowed under and rediscovered and, 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 and grows and, and dies and plowed under and rediscovered and grows repeatedly. If there was an Atlantis, if there were earlier cycles, if there are aliens, they've got the same model because they deduced it the same way we did. Which leads me now into my favorite subject. You made mention a moment ago in passing that this geometry, which is decoded through the letter shapes of the, of the first verse of Genesis, also leads us to a physics. Can you expand on that? I, I have a, a theory. It's, okay. in, it's in my book. Let's discuss how a Bose-Einstein condensate works. All right. First, you have to define because, a Bose-Einstein condensate. Well, here, here's how, how it goes. 
in, in modern physics and quantum mechanics, you have wave-particle duality, and you have the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which tells you that the more accurately you know the velocity of a particle, the less you know about its location. And the more accurately you know its location, the less you know about its velocity. So if you know the exact location of something, you can't tell how fast it's moving. And if you know exactly how fast it's moving, you can't tell where it is. Now, you take a bunch of, of atoms that are close together in a crystal, perhaps, and you cool them down absolute zero, which is as cold as you can get. And even if there's some minor residual motion, basically the velocity of all the particles goes to zero, which means their wave function, their location in physical space, spreads out enormously. So what may have been a microscopic atom at, in, in, at nor, or normal temperature in the dimensions of an atom could be a, an eighth of an inch in diameter or even wilder. In any event, the wave functions of the, the separate particles overlap each other. They entangle, they superpose, and they produce a new emergent quality. So like the, separate, the, separate particles, the separate particles basically become be one. Become one. And that's the basis of the Bose-Einstein condensate and the special qualities of that condensate, which includes being a pool that's outside of time. Now, just to define here, just to define, we have to define because the audience is not following. A lot of them have not had this as background. They can Google it. Bose-Einstein, B-O-S-E, dash Einstein, refers to two physicists, famous physicists, Bose and Einstein, the Einstein at the beginning of the last century, the, the, the 20th century, set out parameters whereby separate entities, separate atomic particles, could under certain circumstances behave as one particle. Yes, the, the, the understanding of quantum mechanics that Bohr and Einstein and Dirac and Bose and the others were, were exploring leads to, leads to this idea theoretically. It's been demonstrated these days. We use it all, all the time. It leads to superconductivity and superfluidity. You can do it in the lab. They're looking, trying to find room temperature superconductors now. They've gotten so good at refining these systems. But the principle is in physics, wave-particle duality. If you, if you cool something down so the particles start moving, then their location in space spreads out. Well, if they, if now, you, if you can, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. If you can stop them, it means they spread out to infinity. Yeah, well, you can't totally stop them, and, and there are other limits also. So the, 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 um, this is a simplified, this is a toy model. We're, we're doing it on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what, hold it there, because it, it's too complex to finish on this side of the break. My guests this morning are um, Stan Tennen and Levana Tennen, and we're, we're talking about, well, we're basically talking about a revolution, a revolution both in physics, a revolution in consciousness, and most intriguing for what we're now facing in terms of a fragmented world tearing itself apart over religion. We're talking about a unity, a oneness of religions that we can now look at mathematically and geometrically as all tracing their ideas, their precepts, their organizing principles, their guiding philosophies, all back to the same source. Not a bad idea for a world in desperate need of a new idea in replacement of the ideas we're currently dancing to and not too well. You're on the other side of midnight. You're listening to the Creation Overture by Daniel Gill, a symphony created from the first verses of Genesis by way of the geometry that Stan Tennant has discovered. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. 
the other side of midnight uh there's a very important rabbinic quote that i think levon is going to read which encapsulates what we're discussing in terms of the the, the body politic right now levana one, one one key idea um, we're going to make the correlation between temperature and ego now read the quote okay this is a quote uh from historian yehuda Liebes, and he is writing about uh re recapitulating Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was a great Kabbalist, on the subject of love among the companions, which means uh, those are characters in the, Zo- in the Zohar. Oh, these are like disciples? Okay. The members of the Manian are companions, and also those surrounding Muhammad were called companions. Okay. okay, so here we are. Here is the quote. The idea that love must prevail among the companions was not confined by Lurianic Kabbalah to the theoretical speculative realm, and it did not apply only to Rabbi Akiva's disciples. Luria himself took pains to ensure that love would prevail among the members of his group. Before worshipping in the synagogue, an individual had to commit himself to the mitzvah of loving one's fellow so that all of the prayers of Israel would be combined together. Especially important, writes Chaim Vital, was the love of companions who study Torah together. Each of them must regard himself as though he were one part of the body of the group of his companions, especially if he has the knowledge and understanding to know his fellow soul. And my teacher cautioned me greatly about the need for love to prevail among the companions in our group. Hmm. You know, Stan, what this reminds me of? You know... Well, let me let me finish it. The, the idea is that when people are loving of each other, they are not expressing their ego. They're not being willful. When you drop your willfulness, that's when your mind can, can merge with each other. It turns out flocking, schooling, and swarming in the animal world, animal world corresponds to what I'm proposing in the world of consciousness in the, the meditation traditions. Now, wait, wait. You have to go back and define that. Flocking... It turns out if you examine the literature on flocking, schooling, and swarming in animals, it takes approximately 10 individuals for the flocking effect to cut in. It turns out that's the minimum you need for a minion in Hebrew to say prayers together. When you say, when you, when, you, when you say minion, what are you, what are you, what are you meaning? Because I'm, I'm thinking of that movie. Jews praying together ah, in Hebrew. Okay, okay. It's not, so, it's not so, the movie. It's okay. M-I-N-Y-N. Okay, so what we're talking about here is group consciousness 
which then, like a Bose-Einstein condensate, can actually lose individuality as part of the group of 10 or more, and then affect... They all contribute to the emergence of a child that floats on the surface of the pool of dominion, exactly as described for Jesus walking on the water. We're describing Messiah emerging from the pool of dominion as the combination of the loving kindness of all the participants in the com- in the commune, in the, the Ummah, in the Minyan. Hmm. Well, that has, an amazing, all the Western traditions. that has an amazing implication yeah. because it's basically saying if you, if you put yourself aside, if you get outside yourself, if you become part of a whole of like-minded... And do particular exercises, you get particular results. Okay, but, but that means that in terms of consciousness, as a consciousness experiment by a group, if you focus yes. on, on creating activity in the real world... There is a there's a there's a tradition and a physics that backs up that this can actually take place, and someone well, has I'm their phone on. That the Bose-Einstein condensate model applies to the model of a meditating minion of people who love each other and care for each other and are not egocentric or controlling. That when you have a group of people that exceeds ten, who are mature adults who can drop their differences and all look to the same high standard, the same goal, the same high principle, abstraction, one God, that their consciousnesses add together like the, the particles, wave functions in a Bose-Einstein composite, and you get a new emergent quality, which in the Christian tradition is described as the Messiah walking on the water. Hmm. In Judaism, there are parallel descriptions because the Christian tradition got it from the Torah tradition, which is obvious everyone understands. What I'm describing, if, it's used, if we use the proper respectful language, is satisfying and acceptable to Jews, Christians, and Muslims without insulting anyone. It's a win-win-win model, and it's also an explanation for the scientists that don't believe in anything, because you can, you can model this in ways that we do understand rationally. By the way, Maimonides says that Abraham figured this out rationally before he did experiments in consciousness. First, he figured it out. He did the math first. Well, what's so interesting about this is that we've been doing kind of like primitive consciousness experiments uh, with, for instance, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter discovered in August yes. that he had uh, cancer of the brain. A, a few days ago, the announcement was made. He made it himself in Sunday school that the cancer apparently had disappeared. He's under an immunotherapy regimen. But in addition, there are people listening to the show who have been basically meditating on Jimmy Carter getting well and okay and let me let me draw a line of caution here though this is all true I understand it I agree with it but there is a caveat if you brag about it your ego ego becomes involved and your contribution to making it happen decreases so it becomes less likely to hold so the idea is to not say that this is magic and happens every time you have to let your ego your expectations go to, to observe these effects. So you can't count on them. I have a, a, a meditation which we can describe and we'll, we'll go into in a future program if you want, where a peace person can experiment with this for themselves safely. Hmm. And you don't have to believe anyone but your own experience. And it, and it only works if you don't believe it going in. If you buy, buy it going in, then it, 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 it doesn't work. It only works if, you, you're, if you're, 
rational mind is dead set against. Why is that? Because that means your rational mind has given up control, which is the condition under which these things can happen. Well, Loving kindness is the opposite of control. Hmm. Well, when this news suddenly broke, you know, I got a lot of emails saying, oh, my God, our experiments and all that. And I cautioned everybody a few nights ago that we really don't, don't know, that we really do not know. We have to look. I'm trying to accumulate, you know, the, the medical studies and look at other patients on the same drug and all this. But at least there's the possibility that we could focus intention. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Stan, yeah. if we could use this to basically change what's going on right yes, now in the world? Yes, and the key to doing it is to be able to distinguish sense from nonsense. So we have to do explicit experiments to determine what the lines, what the, what the actual parameters are. It can't be everything that works. Some things work, some things don't work. Some things are sensible, some things are nonsense. If we do experiments in consciousness, and I can, I can propose a few, then we can discover if this is real very quickly. We have the equipment to do it now. Everyone has a smartphone. Mm. We can all read our own EKGs and EEGs, and we can find out if we could coordinate our consciousness experimentally with some very simple protocols in the real world. Why don't we set that up but for the next show? It's not going to happen if we power trip it, because the whole thing is dependent on not power tripping it, okay. on not controlling it. The reason the skeptics never get results when they test anything psychological is because they are. I think we're, we lost you there, Mom. Drop your ego investment. Yeah, we actually dropped your call. Can you go back and reiterate that? From where? Hello? 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 Hello. Yeah, I, actually, we, we have a caller on the line. I just popped up. Um, oh, a caller. Yeah, where are you calling from and who are you? Um, hello, Richard. This is Glenn from Philadelphia. Oh, hi, Glenn. Hello. Hi, Glenn. Uh, thanks for taking the call. I'll be quick. Um, just just woke up, just tuned in, um, and heard what you're talking about. Fascinating stuff. Um, you were talking about like um, the notion of unity among mankind and physics and stuff like that. And Actually, I called in to mention that um, the unity you see, the, tr the only transcendental unity in existence is Yahweh himself. He gives Yahweh is the only God who gives his name to Moses on Sinai as the as the I, I am that I am. He is the transcendental transcendentally conscious one. And so this unity, you know, is is inherent in the creator himself. And then I found out uh, that you're what you're doing actually has Kabbalistic connections and connections to physics and that sort of thing. But I go further. I go further. I use definition in Psalm 84, which says a sun and a shield is Hashem Elokim. It says that Hashem Elokim are not entities, but there's a gradient of loving kindness between the source and the sink. We make the choices in the world that what Hashem Elokim provides is a negentropic gradient that is the fuel for our being able to exercise our will and our control. When we let go of control, that's when that will can manifest in the most novel and miraculous ways. And if you don't let go of control, you get nothing. You get a sunburn. Neither God, neither Elohim, nor Hashem are entities, are beings, are, are, are making are make choices. That the negentropic gradient between sun and sink, between source and sink, between sun and shield, that negentropic gradient is loving kindness, and when we let it flow. Well, uh, 
Well, you know, Conan, the first epistle of John, says uh, Theos est in agape, God is love. So, um, and he certainly was Jewish. That probably was originally rendered in Hebrew. So well, I personally you know, would, mm-hmm, would agree with that. But go ahead. The, the premise of, of, of what I've been doing is that it agrees with these teachings, but I'm trying to find an understanding of how and why it's so and how we can read the record we have to understand more deeply how it all fits together. So I'm agreeing with, with, with what you're saying as the result of what I'm saying, which is the, is the foundation of, of our consciousness and our physics being the golden rule. Right. You, you were the just talking rule. about uh, unity of consciousness producing something about like a child in the water. And this uh, made me think of the Muslim um, prophecy of the Mahdi emerging from a well. You have a person and water yeah, associated. The, the, well, and is, the, well, the well is associated with also the cave, Plato's cave, and the well. Mm-hmm. They, they're all elements of the, the same sacred geometry as explained in different cultural contexts. It, it, I, I, mm-hmm. I allude to them in my book. I, now, my, my one great concern in terms of where humanity is actually going um, if you look at the prophecies of Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, um, I, you know, I, I you know, personally you know believe Ezekiel that Yahweh... Had... Hmm? You know Ezekiel 30, you, do you know Ezekiel 37? Okay, Ezekiel yeah. 37 basically says there will be peace in the land when we have one, la- one God and one language. And the language comes from unifying the stick of Jacob and the stick of Ephraim. We've recovered right. the stick of Jacob and the stick of Ephraim, demonstrated how it generates a unified language from hand gestures, and that unified language then becomes the basis for the wrong cultures around the world. The right, but then is common language. we also have the prophecies of Damascus, the world's oldest continuously inhabiting city, being left to ruin its heap and the haunt of um, animals. Yeah. We have the Magog battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, and, you know, that, that basically uh, that things are going to get quite a bit worse before they get better. You know, I personally believe Yala is personal and has looked down from his position of transcendence on the timeline of human history future and forewarned us of these things, which will ultimately, I would suggest, be fulfilled. I would much rather, much rather they not, but I believe he's told us the truth on these matters. But uh, all right, take care. Take care, General. I'll let you go. Bye. Fascinating, right. absolutely fascinating. Stan? Yeah, what, what I'm trying to do is get behind these prophecies that come out in different versions in all our different faiths, idea. Are you there? Okay. Um, we're here. Go ahead. Well, it's always based on the golden rule, as I've demonstrated come from these, these two simple lines, and I think that that's the most ancient form, and it's common in all these cultures. That's why we're finding it in Sufism, in Hinduism, in, in in places where you'd never expect to see it. In, in the Bozais and Condes, it takes the same form. The horizontal line is the pool of the Condes, the vertical line is the emerging quality. And that's how you see it in the diagrams in the physics books, because that's the way you illustrate it. It's the same geometry. And it shows up everywhere because it's of its fundamental nature. It represents the golden rules, as above, so below, and what goes, goes around comes around, I think, and their implications. I think we have another caller. Where are you calling from? Hi, Richard. This is uh, Marcus. Um, I'm calling from uh, uh, Flash X on the Four Channels here. Okay. Uh, we we still uh, every night. Um, Four Chan, you know, we, we're part of the Anonymous Collective, 
and we put uh, Mr. Tennant's work into our, you know, our computations and algorithms. Um, and so far, you know, the it looks like his uh, work is, is corrected. It's an, a, a, amazing to have a, a guest like this on online. Well, he will be back. <laughs> yeah, I, I do you, do you have any specific questions? Yeah, yeah, I can't well, understand I what he's saying. I'm only oh, getting I broken just, up. Whether you I can't, can't talk see, over each other. I can't hear him. Oh, um, he's as loud as I'm, we can I'm, make him. No, it's I'm not loud. He's cutting in and out in mid-word. I can't. He's, it's chopped. It's broken that, up. That, I can't hear it. That, that's because when you talk, Skype kills other people talking. So let's all be quiet. No, no. We've been, we've been, we, we, go ahead. Go ahead. Anyways, Richard, I, you know, as, as a member of Sleshex here, um, I just want to know if uh, you'd be our honorary uh, dungeon master. We play uh, dungeon master here at night and uh, kill kobolds. And, I you know, don't uh, think I have time, but thanks for the invitation, okay? Okay. Take All right. I could not Take care. Um, Stan, we only have a few minutes left. If, if you had to summarize, and I want to again give the title of the book, The Alphabet to Change the World. I like the past tense as future. How Genesis Preserves a Science of Consciousness in Geometry and Gesture. How, is, how, how can we put this in, 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 into practice now in the face of what's going on globally? Well, the first thing is to understand the principles. And the second thing is to do objective experiments that can be repeated so we can sort sense from nonsense for ourselves. And once we've got the parameters down, then you start doing the meditations and see what happens. It's experimental. You've got to try it. If it's real physics, it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of doing the experiment. Okay. So that's what I'm, I'm proposing. And, and it all comes down to putting together groups of people who are caring for each other. On, on, on the next time that you come on, if, if we could maybe set up uh, beforehand some kind of experiments we could do via smartphones, digital stuff, so we could see if we actually can synchronize people on different parts of no, the planet. No, I, I, it would be it would be way premature. Okay, I, I could I couldn't couldn't do that at this point. Okay, it would give us noise. It would give us gibberish. We couldn't sort it. We, we need to get to. Uh, we'll talk about it. Okay. If you want to do it, we'll find a way to do it. But we can't do it, just do it quick, quick and dirty. We have to be careful. And after all, if it works, what if something happens? Well, you have to be careful what you wish for. Right. Well, I mean, wouldn't it be kind of useful to wish that the current maelstrom we're immersed in has a positive resolution for everyone? I mean, yep. isn't that kind of where you should approach this without directing? But it's not a matter of wish. It's not, uh, physics isn't about wishing. It's about doing. We need to take action in a co coherent way based on a mutual understanding of what we're doing so what we do is coordinated in the same way as different organs in our body are coordinated while we my have spleen my spleen and and my tonsils don't get aren't close together but they have to support each other yeah let's let's go back to that idea that that we're we're not looking at one world religion we're looking at the different existing great religions of the world is manifesting different aspects of the Body of consciousness. Different organs expressing different expressions of the same DNA. Okay. Common DNA, each organ has a different expression. Each culture has a different embodiment of the same principles. Each appears idolatrous to the others, but they meaning. Hmm. Hmm. 
And the key is respect. And that's exactly what it takes for flocking and swarming and schooling to take place. The creatures have to be attracted to come close, but not too close. It's in my book. <laughs> Obviously, I use, I use the flocking, schooling, and swarming model to explain how I think this Bose-Einstein composite effect works in human consciousness. That's my explanation. It's not necessarily correct. It's a model. It's a metaphor. It might be correct, but it, it only needs to be a metaphor. Let me while we have a, while we have a few minutes here, uh, Lavanda, did you want to say something? No, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, okay. actually. Okay. Um, while we have time, I wanted to quote a few more of the people who have looked at your work. And remember, everyone, uh, the way science is, is gauged in our, in our reality today is something called peer review, which means people who know enough to be able to make a considered judgment take a look, and they either give thumbs up or thumbs down. Here's one from Lewis Kaufman, who was professor of mathematics at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Quote, in attempting to unfold the text of Genesis, Stan Tennant has created the beginnings of a wonderful geometric language using real and deep mathematical structures. The language is a new alphabet, an alphabet of geometric forms that may solve the riddle of Genesis. The geometric alphabet is itself not only a great artistic and conceptual value, but I believe it will be seen to hold a key for many other questions in language and science. This project brings together the old and fascinating questions about origins of language and the self with the rigorous traditions of modern geometric thinking and mathematical imagination. Not bad, Stan. Not bad. And he wrote that quite a while ago. That was before we understood that at the bottom of everything golden rules. That was earlier than we than our current understanding. But I, Lewis still a friend. Well, the thing that's impressive to me is that it took you 30 years for a few of your friends, <clears throat> hint, hint, to get you to actually put all this down in a book. And the book is available from North Atlantic Books. There's a link to the book on othersideofmidnight.com on the guest page tonight. The Alphabet That Changed the World, How Genesis Preserves a Science of Consciousness in Geometry and Gesture. And if you go to the May Room, go ahead. Richard, I wanted to thank you on the air for getting us from San Francisco to Boston 15 years ago, 18 years ago. <laughs> it was your help that got, moved us. We had a truckload of stuff that we couldn't afford to move, and your friends and your connections and your support has made it happen. Thank you. Well, look, when you see someone doing what you've been doing, and I've been watching it painstakingly for decades, literally decades, as it's built toward this new crescendo of where we are tonight, it's kind of like a thing that's time has come. To me, the only real antidote for ISIS and all the other insanity, Trump notwithstanding, is love. And the fact that all the great religions are actually united underneath, and you can now prove it geometrically and mathematically that they derive from the source, which is telling us this in overwhelmingly plain terms is something that I think we need and we need a lot of right now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we should discuss it further and thank you again. And this has been a wonderful opportunity. If people have questions, send them to us. We'll try to respond. I'll tell you what, we have got a couple of minutes here. Uh, where are we? Where are we? Um, I didn't do that right. Um, so, so I can't do what I was going to do. So do you have something you wanted to say? 
No, I was saying. Oh, actually, actually, I I actually can do this. Okay. So what I'd like to do is to go out on playing a, a little more of the Creation Overture by Daniel Gill, because to me the idea that you can create music from Genesis and the music has pattern and form and beauty and is awesome in its majesty based in a reality to me that is stunning. Stan, thank you for your work. Lavana, thank you for your support of Stan. And um, I'll tell you what, everybody, why don't we just let this music take us out tonight as opposed to playing our traditional theme. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return tomorrow night, same time, same station, with um, something that, well, you should look forward to. Until then, stay tuned. Saturday night, Sunday morning. That was the two hours that went so fast, and there's so much more that I wanted to ask him on the next iteration of our conversation. Unfortunately, uh, medically, he was unable to uh, to do that. And uh, frankly, I, I I feel a great loss tonight because we needed Stan's voice, active, vibrant in terms of what's currently going on. And one of the things that really got to me is how out of time this conversation was because from 2015, from just before Christmas in 2015, what has changed? We're now tonight facing, Israel is facing, the world is facing, a terror group which has adopted all the atrocious, extraordinary horrors of this ISIS group of those years ago and is replicating it almost act for act and horror for horror, except now it's on live social media. It's streamed. It was streamed on Facebook. It's, it's undeniable that, as many have now said, Evil is alive in the world. And if you come across or come away with any, any thought, any coherent gestalt of what this conversation meant tonight, the only antidote for evil is unconditioned love. And I want to go back to one of the things that Stan said toward the end of the, the not quite two hours. And that is that from actual replicable demonstrations, from experiments, if you gather 10 or more people, reminds me of that, that very famous song, if two or more of you are gathered in his name, if you gather 10 like-minded, selfless people, 
you can direct that intention and you can, given other conditions, given the other caveats, you can change the world. Can you imagine tonight how many people all around this planet are hoping and praying and focusing and meditating and synchronizing and coming together in groups all focused on averting the absolute catastrophic result that would result if Israel enters Gaza with its military might. Might does not make right, and revenge only begets revenge. I am praying, and remember, I'm a scientist, so I'm using that term in the largest possible sense of resonance in the physics, coherency in people perceiving a different reality than seems to be tonight. And I obviously haven't had time doing the show and monitoring everything to make sure everything worked um, to see what's gone on in the Middle East in the last few hours. I presume we're not in all-out war in Gaza, but we can't be sure. So if there's one takeaway from this particular conversation, it has to be that and love minds can affect the world. There is ample experimentation in the form of those experiments that Art used to do and then George took up. And, you know, I, I will say gently that it was due to one of those experiments many decades ago, you know, something like uh, 25, a quarter of a century ago, that I was literally dying and Art came before his audience and he importuned that they pray for me, that they think positively for me. And I mean, I can't prove that it worked, but I'm still here. And with administrations of Robin in the after effects and the afterglow, when other things superseded my failing health in, in the audience's mind, she brought me the rest of the way. And together, I'm still here. And the, one of the reasons I think I'm here is because we're on the verge of stunning breakthroughs in so many areas that we have been jointly exploring, not the least of which is Stan Tenen's work, which is more true tonight and more needed, vitally needed tonight than at any other time. Why is it so unimaginable to think that if enough people connected by social media in every land, in every country, under every ism, under every uh, pontificate of belief or religious structure or philosophical background, there has got to be, there is demonstrably just one unifying thought which is Israel cannot follow the course that Netanyahu seems to have set it upon, but must in fact take another road. It must be a shining example, extraordinarily important biblical quote, which is turn the other cheek. 
I know for a lot of people mired in contemporary politics of separation and division and deliberate division, that it really seems as if that might be impossible. But as I have known in my own life, when I was at the edge of forever, and all of you brought me back, I will firmly believe till my dying day that it was the intervention of Art's consciousness experiment, knowing nothing about what Stan was working on. It was the intervention of all of the love and, 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 and care exemplified by a caring audience that in fact I was able to come back. I was able to stay here. We need to apply that same dictum for another, another turn of the page, an alternative perspective on what looks like less tonight maybe than maybe a week ago, but maybe a doomed inevitability in terms of what Israel does from here on. If we can imagine that something different can in fact obtain, then just maybe, maybe it will happen. You're on the other side of midnight. We've got one half hour to go. What I'm going to do is I'm going to replay uh, some of what you've just heard because it's so important that this message be heard as far and as wide as possible. We are not subject to irresolute fate. We can determine with consciousness which road we take. So let's look at the road of peace and love and look at it again over the next half hour. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. That means your rational mind has given up control. Which... Whoops. Don't want to do that. <laughs> Let me go and do this. Okay. Now, wrong, wrong, wrong one. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, remember, I'm all by myself here tonight. Kintia is, is rescuing a friend who needs a real friend tonight. There's been a small crisis, and she's there. And uh, hopefully, Keith is asleep because he's been working, you know, both ends of the candle at both ends um, because of his uh, work at Howard University and the television show called It's Academic. And so um, uh, what I want to do 
in this uh, uh, last half hour is kind of take this conversation to areas where unfortunately Stan and I uh, were unable to. And one of those areas, let me make sure I get this right, is the idea that um, we know a lot more now tonight, uh, years after 2015, than we did the night that we had the conversation in uh, 2015. And I believe, and I'm really uh, gratified to, to hear that Stan was open to the idea, A, that this all goes back to an earlier source when the planet was perchance one culture, one people, one high civilization that then subsequently through mechanisms that we currently can suspect but we do not know for sure, uh, fragmented and became all the disparate cultures of the current world with all the vicissitudes of the destruction of information and the reconstruction and the rediscovery and all that. And as you heard him say very resolutely, he believes that that reincarnation of this fundamental model, this geometric understanding of consciousness, of physics, of language, of the origins of the alphabet itself, disparate all over the planet in all those amazingly diverse different forms now can all trace back maybe to an earlier global civilization. Well, if you look at the direction of archaeology and you look at the direction of our work and the people that we have brought in to our discussions over the many years that uh, I've been doing this show, in fact, even if you look back at my own you know, earlier work, The Monuments of Mars, the idea that we are looking at lost and forgotten epics of high culture, which look a lot like, from a distance, the kind of speculations that, you know, Stan and I had that night so many years ago. I mean, let me give you an example. We've had now several ensuing works of eminent people in this field like, uh, Graham Hancock. And Graham Hancock has written a series of books. I'm forgetting on the top of my head what the latest one was, but he has marshaled evidence that in fact, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, in fact, according to the ruins at Gobekli Tepe, which were not known, certainly worldwide at the time that Ron and Ron, Stan and I did this show, we now know that there was a much earlier epic of extraordinarily sophisticated development of architecture, uh, religion, celestial marking, astronomy, uh, probably a hyperdimensional based astrology, which has only been, we've only seen the vestiges of what has been uncovered in terms of the richness which is lying there under the ground in Turkey to be much more deeply explored. And there are other avenues of mainstream current, you know, kind of kick the tires research, which is pointing in the same direction of a previous high culture, which then somehow probably because of outside influences 
or maybe not, uh, fragmented. And we're in the process, very slow and painstaking process, of reassembling through mainstream science slowly and sometimes agonizingly slowly our perceptions ancient world which are radically different vastly different than the archaeology and the sciences that have come before because there has been left over from the Victorian era the idea that you know civilization and human you know consciousness and relationships and knowledge of the world has been trending upwards in a kind of a straight line to wherever it's going. In other words, you go from the much more primitive, the much more uh, arcane, the much more fragmentary to a more unitary view of knowledge in the world. And it ascends to a rather remarkable and for some an unimaginable future. Well, that whole worldview grew out of the sciences developing in the uh, 18th and 19th century. It's a very Victorian England perception of the future and the past. Whereas if you look at native peoples like the Maya, like the Hindu, like the Jewish people, like all other native Aboriginal peoples around the world, their view is very, very different, which is that history, that life on earth, that human experience is cyclic and it rolls over and over and over down through time or up through time. And that we are at some level simply reliving things that human beings lived a long, long time ago in some traditions, like the Vedic tradition out of India, keyed to the processional cycle of the roughly 26,000 years between each golden age, and then a descent into the Kali Yuga, the bottom of the barrel, where consciousness is almost non-existent and people are against people, and enmity is awash in the land, and evil triumphs in the short. In other words, does it kind of describe the current world we are in? And in fact, that model of a cyclic history, as opposed to an unending, as Arthur Clarke would have said, ascension from the great primeval swamp, the cyclic view of history seems to be more accurate than the linear model of the Victorians. And we have some data points. We've got Sam Asmonagich's work uh, under in the labyrinth of tunnels underneath the approaching that extraordinary edifice there in Bosnia, the so-called Great Pyramid, surrounded by all kinds of other smaller pyramids that now look like just ancient mountains, but in fact seem to be eroded ancient architecture on a stunningly megalithic scale pyramids 1500 to half a mile high with edges that are miles in length very similar in scale and in design and in intent to the things that we have been exploring for like 40 years for me at Sidonia and elsewhere on Mars 
And then we have the current uh, political structure headed by Prime Minister Modi of India going to the moon with an unmanned spacecraft landing successfully near the south pole of the moon at about 19.5 degrees. And of course, I don't know whether you got it from Stan's discussion, but remember how toward the end, everything he said basically culminated with the shaping form of a tetrahedron, which implies, of course, the circumscribed tetrahedron with the vertices in planets, in stars, in the Earth at plus or minus 19.5 degrees. And that, of course, in a two-dimensional plane, produces visually what is called the Merkava, what I call the double tetrahedron in 3D, which is the key to a rotational hyperdimensional physics, which you will see countless times now all over the world on every TV screen depicted on the Israeli flag itself. The question, of course, is, is Israel going to follow the high road of turn the other cheek, of, of feeding and clothing and housing the Palestinians for whom, in a most unbrotherly fashion, they have cut off from food and water and medicine and electricity and fuel? In other words, the current Israel we're seeing tonight, barring a stunning consciousness reversion to its own ancient roots would not be recognized by the rabbis and the prophets of old. It would be something so foreign, something so far out on the limb of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. There has to be a change. There has to be something else besides the nightmare that we are being presented with tonight. Is it possible, is it just possible that part of that change, part of that uh, alternate consciousness can persist from this show going viral, being sent by everyone who knows anyone who is connected that could possibly affect the behavior of Netanyahu and company tonight? That really is the reason that I have run this show, because it is so contemporary, it is so current, it is so part and parcel of what we tried to depict as a unifying principle based in the fundamental roots of all the great religions of the world. And Stan has demonstrated in his work, remember, the alphabet that changed the world, that this is not projection, this is not romance, this is not fantasy. The unity of human beings is exemplified at the core of Stan's work and in that book. And so do yourself a favor, go get a copy and begin to read. And on that note, let me end with... Um, uh, let's see here. I'm going to try to fix the right place in the tape to bring this to an end. Uh, let's see if I get it right about here.
Okay. I, I could, I couldn't, couldn't do that at this point. Okay. It would give us noise. It would give us gibberish. We couldn't sort it. We, we need to get to uh, If you want to do it, we'll find a way to do it, but we can't do it, just do it quick, quick and dirty. We have to be careful. And after all, if it works, what if something happens? <laughs> well, you have to be careful what you wish for. Right. Well, I mean, wouldn't it be kind of useful to wish that the current maelstrom we're immersed in has a positive resolution for everyone? I mean, yeah. isn't that kind of where you should approach this without directing? But it's not a matter of wish. It's not, like, physics isn't about wishing. It's about doing. We need to take action in a co- coherent way based on a mutual understanding of what we're doing. So what we do is coordinated in the same way as different organs in our body are coordinated. While we my have spleen, my spleen and and my tonsils don't get aren't close together, but they have to support each other. Yeah, let's let's go back to that idea that that we're we're not looking at one world religion. We're looking at the different existing religions of the world as manifesting different aspects of the body of consciousness. Different organs expressing different expressions of the same DNA. Okay. Common DNA, each organ has a different expression. Each culture has a different embodiment of the same principles. Each appears idolatrous to the others, but they, meaning, and the key is respect. And that's exactly what it takes for flocking and swarming and schooling to take place. The creatures have to be attracted to come close, but not too close. It's in my book. <laughs> Obviously, I use the flocking, schooling, and swarming model to explain how I think this Bose-Einstein condensate effect works in human consciousness. That's my explanation. It's not necessarily correct. It's a model. It's a metaphor. It might be correct, but it, it only needs to be a metaphor. Let me while we have sense. a while we have a few minutes here, uh, Lavanda, did you want to say something? No, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation, okay. actually. Okay. Um, while we have time, I wanted to quote a few more of the people who have looked at your work. And remember, everyone, uh, the way science is, is gauged in our, in our reality today is something called peer review, which means people who know enough to be able to make a considered judgment take a look, and they either give thumbs up or thumbs down. Here's one from Lewis Kaufman, who was professor of mathematics at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Quote, In attempting to unfold the text of Genesis, Stan Tennant has created the beginnings of a wonderful geometric language using real and deep mathematical structures. The language is a new alphabet, an alphabet of geometric forms that may solve the riddle of Genesis. The geometric alphabet is itself not only a great artistic and conceptual value, but I believe it will be seen to hold a key for many other questions in language and science. This project brings together the old and fascinating questions about origins of language and the self with the rigorous traditions of modern geometric thinking and mathematical imagination. Not bad, Stan. Not bad. And you wrote that quite a while ago. That was before we understood that at the bottom of everything golden rules. That was earlier than, we, than our current understanding. But I, Louis still a friend. Well, the thing that's impressive to me is that it took you 30 years for a few of your friends, hint, hint, to get you to actually put all this down in a book. And the book is available from North Atlantic Books. There's a link to the book on othersideofmidnight.com on the guest page tonight. 
the alphabet that changed the world, how Genesis preserves a science of consciousness in geometry and gesture. And if you go to the Meru, go ahead. Richard, I wanted to thank you on the air for getting us from San Francisco to Boston 15 years ago, 18 years ago. <laughs> it was your help that got, moved us. We had a truckload of stuff that we couldn't afford to move, and your friends and your connections, your support has made it happen. Thank you. Well, look, when you see someone doing what you've been doing, and I've been watching it painstakingly for decades, literally decades, as it's built toward this new crescendo of where we are tonight, it's kind of like a thing that's time has come. To me, the only real antidote for ISIS and all the other insanity, Trump notwithstanding, is love. And the fact that all the great religions are actually united underneath, and you can now prove it geometrically and mathematically that they derive from the source, which is telling us this in overwhelmingly plain terms, is something that I think we need and we need a lot of right now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we should discuss it further. And this has been a wonderful opportunity. If people have questions, send them to us. We'll try to respond. I'll tell you what. We have got a couple of minutes here. Uh, where are we? Where are we? Um, I didn't do that right. Um, so, so I can't do what I was going to do. So you had something you wanted to say? No, oh, I, I was saying. Oh, actually, actually, I, I actually can do this. Okay. So what I'd like to do what? is to go out on playing a, a little more of the Creation Overture by Daniel Gill, because to me, the idea that you can create music from Genesis and the music has pattern and form and beauty and is awesome in its majesty and is based in a reality, to me, that is stunning. Stan, thank you for your work. Lavana, thank you for your support of Stan. And um, I'll tell you what, everybody, why don't we just let this music take us out tonight as opposed to playing our traditional theme. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return tomorrow night same time, same station, with um, something that, well, you should look forward to. Until then, stay tuned. <laughs> Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll hang up. Bye-bye.